dimensional world which you inhabit can be bent to your will only when you enter the fifth dimension. We got Mark Vesprini in the house. We got Shit. Mark Vesprini in the fifth dimension. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. It is very nice to see you. It's very nice to see you, as always. Oh, it is, it is always a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Yeah. I think we've had one bad time where it was like, shit, that was terrible. That was low I vibes. enjoy that. <laughs> that was low vibes. Can't do that anymore. Yeah. Maybe this will be it. Yeah. So now I'm fading out the music. We're doing okay. this all pro. Very pro. Yeah. The first podcast when Trin was here, um, the music came on and I just like hard edit, took it out and it sounded like something glitched. So when I watched it, I'm like, okay, I'm going to fade out next time. Yeah. You'll get all the kinks out. All right. This is what? Number what? Eight. This is wow. number number eight. Wow. I'm so nervous again. I'm always nervous. I've never seen you nervous. Oh, come on. What's nervous for you? Uh, no, it's not nervous. It's, uh, first of all, I say that because I think it's funny to say that I'm nervous. Of course. Even yeah. though I'm not really that nervous. It's Makes just, it relatable. It's exciting. Yeah. yeah. I, I, need to, I need those relatability, uh, relatability points. Yeah. It's an excitement. It's yeah. an excitement because we don't know where this is going. Exactly. We've had multiple wonderful conversations with each other. Um, but it's just like... We're getting ready to dance now, you know? We're getting ready to talk about whatever. Stage is set. The stage is set. We got all the lights. Everything looks great. Feels great. It's a little warm in here. But that's okay, fellow time travelers. On those third-party vibes, luckily you have your own climate control. And uh, Mark Vesprini, who the hell are you? Why don't you tell the trillions of people out there in the Galactic Federation? Why don't you tell them, who are you? What do you do? What do you love? Let's hear it. I think you're going to start with some softballs. No, man, we're going hard. All right. Um, who am I? I don't know. That's a great question. That's a great question. I hope I figure it out. I'm trying to figure it out. We're all trying to figure that out. Um, yeah, man. I, uh, I'm a musician. That's always been at the center of what I do. Not always like in terms of career, but in terms of just life and who I vibe with and how I see the world. So. I think that's what we originally kind of started connecting over it was business and, and music. Those were the two facets. That, that's what it was when I, when I first met you. Mm -hmm. That's what we discussed the most was obviously we, we came from music, we made music, but it was our fascination with um, business development or processes you know, within business. Like yes. I remember I was talking to you about like inventory systems and lean manufacturing and all yeah. this setup stuff that could directly apply to music production or scaling music production or creating platforms mm -hmm. or whatever that may be. Yeah. Always this, I think we share this, um, this, this way of thinking where we really overthink where we're going. Right. So let's say I have this to a fault almost. Yeah. To a fault. Yeah. So for example, let's say I've got this podcast I want to do, or I have an email that I want to blast out. I'm thinking about it in terms of like, how am I going to manage the millions coming in? Right. How do I set up all the departments? How do I do all this stuff? You're and optimizing the supply chain before you've like even before got your first guest booked. Before I even know yeah. if anyone gives a shit, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's like this wild, like planning mind. I don't yeah. know what that comes from. Is that a fear? Is it um, an engineering kind of mind? What I, is that? I think it's, I don't know what the initial seed is, but for me, it's always been, I've always gone deep on things. I don't like staying in the surface. I think that's why a lot of people don't like me. I'm very bad at like uh, surface level interactions. And I think that comes off as cold or whatever. 
But uh, yeah, I, I've always had a mind that just like ruminates on things. I can't let it go. I always just like pull at the thread, pull at the thread, pull at the thread. So anything like business or music, I mean, I like just getting deep into it. And I think you're the same way. So we've always clicked on that level. Yeah. Well, in terms of like the small talk stuff or talking about just surface level shit, I don't have the ability. So I don't really spend time with anyone who who wants to talk about that stuff. So I yeah. guess I don't get perceived as cool. Well, maybe I do. Oh, this guy thinks he's too good or this. And I, I don't think so. You're much more like your natural state is very warm and like engaging. And I think you genuinely seem interested in people. I don't have any of that. Yeah. Well, maybe we're different than that because I, maybe that's true. I do seem warm and I can connect with strangers, but it's my personal relationships that, that, that suffer greatly. <laughs> I don't have the ability to connect on a personal level, but if it's strangers on the street or someone at a party, I can fucking small talk about anything whenever. So I guess I'm wrong in that way. Yeah. Yeah. We're different in that regard for sure. But at, at the core of things, we're the same. Yes. And we love talking about, uh, I guess, I guess what it's based on is like our imaginations, which are, are running constant simulations. Right. And we like to imagine where things are going to go and where the, where the, the, the the water or the what do you call it the flow the flow yeah. is going to go and we want to imagine where it's going to be and how we can be ready and what we can prepare and how to react and like i said earlier maybe programming too many simulations because once you go out in nature as you know yeah the market reaction to your initial hypothesis yeah uh, usually delivers something greatly different than uh, your next 25 steps has 100%, anticipated 100 percent yeah it's never about the plan, I find. The plan is always wrong uh, in business. And like, if you go into a writing session with a plan, like like you said, the second you hit reality, everything deviates and you go in a different direction. But I think like the process of planning is interesting because that's where you start to develop like skills and the ability to like visualize and like manifest things that aren't there. And I think those skills, you get better and better at those skills. And then as you like encounter reality, you're able to kind of like adapt a lot faster. And I think it, it's, yeah, it's an interesting process, but yeah, definitely the plan goes out the window immediately. So I see the, the importance of the plan is definitely you, right. Cause plan usually it comes, um, comes with funding. Let's say you're talking business. If you want to go to the bank, you have to provide them with a plan. Right. And if you're starting your business, you have no idea where it's going to go, mm-hmm. but you have to work on this business plan. And in my head, it's always been like, isn't that like a waste? Because as soon as you make move one, you don't know where move two will be. Mm -hmm. But I think the, it's like you have to sell them on some kind of magical, mystical plan that makes sense. Yeah. Like what, what is it really? I think good investors recognize that it's not going to go like this, but it's an opportunity for you to showcase as someone who's like presenting this. I can think through all the things that we're going to have to think through, even if I'm wrong about my current hypothesis on those things. I know those things exist. I know these are challenges, obstacles, problems we're going to have to solve. Um, So I think like the ability to demonstrate at least that you can think through something and go deep into it. And like that level of detail is probably what they're looking for. And then the second tier of it is like, is this person passionate about it? And I think the way that you unveil the plan shows like those different meters for like optimism Versus like realism versus, you know, passion for whatever it is that you're talking about. So it's, it's a good kind of Trojan horse. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Cause you think you're supplying one thing, but the educated or experienced investor will know that he's actually looking for 
other points. And like you said, enthusiasm, realism, is this guy out to lunch yep. or is this girl out to lunch? Yep. Are they, um, are they thorough? Are, are they, you know, do they work hard? Does mm -hmm. this, does this business plan look like a piece of shit? So maybe it's just demonstrating your, your knowledge, your acumen. I think so. Yeah. And they're, they're looking for one, probably one unique perspective, something that's like, you're going out there, you're putting yourself on out there on a limb and taking like some stance on some, you know, particular like market insight that's different from everybody else that's entered this arena. And I think that like is what you have to be right about. It's like the unique market insight, all the shit you build around it. Like I find it hilarious that you have to put like, you know, three years of like financial projections into these things. It's like, I mean, that's never been wrong. Right. There's never been one time in history where someone's like been able to accurately like forecast the, you know, financial return on their, uh, on their idea or whatever it is, but it's, that's that like market insight. I think that they're after. And then, yeah, just how, how deep can you go with this? Are you thorough enough to think through this? Who knows? It's like a, it's like a CV. Yeah. Almost. It's a CV. Are you prepped? Does this make sense? Is there in your assumption based on this new niche that you've uncovered within this market? Is it feasible at all? I guess that's what that's for. Yeah. But yeah, I never, I never really thought about it like that. But I guess that's, it's like every, it's, it's like what's school about, right? Right. For the vast majority of people, is school about learning these things or is it really a Trojan horse for like learning social interaction and understanding what your place is mm -hmm. and how to address certain situations and, and survive really. Yeah. Right. And, and to find your place, to understand your place. Cause that's how I see school. That's a very niche perspective on school. Yeah, right. For sure. Yeah. And and because for the most the vast majority of people aren't going into really specialized things. Most people aren't becoming doctors or engineers. Mm -hmm. So let's say like 80-20 rule, I always bring that up. Yeah. I'd say 20%, like the one to twenty percent are filtered out into expertise and where they're really going into deep learning of something. Mm -hmm. You know, into into some kind of engineering or yeah. doctor or whatever it may be. But everyone else is just learning social integration. Yeah. I feel like even even that balance is going to change though. Because even those things that were traditionally like you would have to go through like the the classical like education path. I mean, even those fields are being so quickly transformed by technology that like the curriculum isn't really keeping up with, you know, what it's like to be a doctor or what it's like to be an accountant. You know, every day there's like a new app or a new piece of software. Like in, in 15 years, I don't think doctors are going to be like doing much diagnosis just because the technology is going to exceed like their capacity to diagnose. So then your skills and how you like deliver value as a physician has to change to keep up with that technology. And it's like unlikely that the curriculum is going to evolve at the same rate. So I think school is kind of becoming increasingly disconnected from the world it's trying to prepare you for on the surface. And I, I see that becoming a, an interesting point of, of interest for people looking to solve challenging problems. Do you see it perhaps as the school for the doctor will maybe turn into like the business plan for the entrepreneur where it's, you're showcasing that you can learn and adapt and you're showcasing things that a doctor of the future should have, right? And that's what your education is. Like maybe it'll evolve towards that. Yeah. I think that'd be a great evolution for sure. Um, but kids in general in school, like they need to go somewhere, Right. The parents are working. School is just like a perfect 
drop-off zone where it's like you just leave your kids there and they can spend all day. Something happens. They, they do something. Yeah. Some kids will learn something. Other <laughs> kids will do other things. But it's just like a big uh, daycare yeah. for most people till they're like 20. Yeah. School is a daycare. <laughs> Knowing what you know now about um, like the fragility of the human mind at those ages how terrifying is it to like put your kid in someone else's hands for like eight hours a day, five days a week and just, you know, stick them in there, get them out the other side of it. You have no idea like what happened. There's some curriculum, like presumably someone has a plan. You don't know who the fuck is like teaching them. You don't know what their values are, what subliminal like messages are getting through to like the kid through their, you know, subconscious, whatever the teacher believes in or their view <laughs> on the world. Like you're just putting them in someone else's hands to like mold for a significant part of their life. It's fucked up. Well, I think the teacher is the least of the worries. Probably. Look at all the kids yeah. who are surrounding your kid yeah. or my potential kid. Yeah. All these people coming from different households with different th ideologies or different subconscious, I don't know, ideas. And, and like no kids have a developed sense of ego. No. So they're just really, whatever, wherever they come from, that's what they are. The just bully, sponges. you know, the bully comes from, I don't know, the household that, I don't know, maybe missing a parent or he gets a beating or, you know, it, it's like, it's classic. It's, it's mm -hmm. rarely off. You know, yeah. we're not supposed to generalize, but fuck it. It's like, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's what, that's what I see. Patterns are patterns. And so I do think about that, especially understanding the subconscious mind a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm no expert. I'm, I'm a self-proclaimed bro scientist. Yeah. Um, but it really goes in line with the laws of nature. It's like, you're going to put them there. And now it's scarier now if you understand these things, but there's that phase of discovery where let's say it's a conspiracy or you learn something new that changes your, your paradigm, a word that you like to use. At first there's fear, right? Because you're discovering this new world. But once, if you can, learn from it and move on, then you can realize like we are just, uh, you know, biological creatures in nature built up of whatever came before us. And it's the laws of the jungle at school. So it's in the wise words of Donnie Dekas, if he dies, he dies, <laughs> right? It's, it's, a, it's pure survival. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's pure interaction. You're not secluded, right? You're, you're not... Um, you're not in your own bubble. Mm -hmm. You're not homeschooled. You're going out into the environment and you have no choice but to survive. And I, just like this um, uh, coronavirus, I think that a lot of people, when they're put to the test, really pull off interesting things and shows that they have a lot more uh, survival instinct and skill mm -hmm. than you can imagine when you're in your bubble and you're fearing potential simulations as we were talking about. So long story short, if you're putting your kid in school, know that whatever their true colors are, are going to emerge and they're going to survive. Very rarely is someone going to die. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's, there's suicide, there's bullying, but that's not in the fucking great majority. Most people figure out where they stand. Are they a coder? Are they, a, you know, some kind of gamer? Do they like sports? They, they kind of, are they a slacker, mm -hmm. you know, are they going to, you know, and the slacker goes on to be like an amazing, uh, I don't know, real estate agent or something, sure. right? Because yeah. slacker in school just means that they have a different set of skills somewhere else. Or they're not stimulated in some way. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're high octane. They mm -hmm. need that, they need that jolt. They need that juice. Yeah. 
So that's that's what my my idea of, of school is in general. It's it's just like the perfect social integration. Because mm-hmm. what's the alternative? Oh, you know, all these these people who come from different households who are not mindful and don't know this or that. What's the alternative? Like putting your kid in a bubble? Yeah, no, no, no. Because where they might benefit, they might sorely miss out on something else. Yeah. No, I think diversity is super important. Like you can't be the only person putting ideas in your kid's head. They're going to turn out a psychopath. Well, yeah. Then that would assume that we know everything. And yeah. we don't. I don't think so. Because I think the, the, it's classic line, but the more you do learn, the more you realize how much is out of your control. Yeah. And that there's no real control. Yeah. So would you frame it like that for your kids then? Would you like kind of pitch it to them like, hey, here's what you're walking into. Here's what to expect. Um, maybe. Does that change the experience, you think? Maybe it would be uh, an upgraded kind of respectful conversation, mm-hmm. like a real conversation, rather than tell them, not, don't do this, don't do that, yeah. which is like, a, it comes from love, but it's out of fear, and, and it's just like the tools that people know, mm-hmm. knew back then. We just know different stuff now. Mm-hmm. So it's just refining itself. Yeah. So yeah, I, I would I would tell my kid that. Yeah. How could I not? I talk about this shit with everyone. I know. Yeah, they're gonna be little right. As much geniuses. as as much as I want to play four D chess and try to Trojan horse everything, it's in theory it sounds good, but it's I, I always end up spilling the beans of my entire thought process with whoever I'm fucking talking about. Go or deep. two. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go deep. De- go deeper. Exactly. Go home. Yeah. Go deeper. Go home. Yeah, man. I think about this a lot though. I want kids for sure, and I think a lot about. Um, just preparing them for a successful, fulfilled life. Like what, what would that take and how fragile like that idea is and like how much my idea of that has changed over like the last few years even and to be instilling in someone else like that, you know, this irreversible process almost of like building up their belief system and stuff like that. I don't know, man, it's scary. It's a huge responsibility. And then, and then you start to inject other things like school and like classmates and like the ideas that are, are kind of presented in traditional education. Like, I think that would be the one thing I would, I would, I mean, kids know that there's assholes out there by the time they go to school, they know like all the stuff that they're going to have so much content to engage with before they even step foot in a classroom. They'll, they'll know kind of what to expect from that sense. Um, but in terms of like what it is to, add and capture value from the world. I think that's where I would want to just draw a line and be like, look, school's wrong about a lot of this shit. Like you're going to need to learn some of these skills for sure. Um, most of it is nonsense that you'll never use, but like get good at learning, like learn the skill of learning, right? Like just crush these tests, learn like how to absorb information, filter information, process information, develop like your thesis and like crush the test. Cause that's a great skill. It doesn't matter if you like, you know, love the book that you're studying in English or, you know, these mathematical concepts are not going to get applied in the future. But like the skill of learning, applying that I think is super valuable. And that's one of the things that school gets wrong for me is that like it tries to teach you that in a very broad general sense, which is like impossible. It's really hard to learn like a skill abstracted from any like real kind of application. Like you, the second you start, you know, thinking about um, the podcast, let's take as an example. If you had tried to learn like the idea of like marketing and like advertising as a subject, where do you even start, right? Like it's it's such a broad field. It's so hard to like get any sort of meaningful progression of that knowledge. But as soon as you're like, okay, 
the podcast is a vehicle for this learning or it's like a lens that you're going to be using to kind of filter out information and see what's relevant and see what you want. Like there becomes a very different pursuit of information. And I think school is like not like that, which is really weird. It's designed to like give you a general education that you then somehow are supposed to point at like a very specific job. And that's why people on day one of the job, it's like, oh, I don't know anything about this. I think, I think you're absolutely right. That perspective, essentially it comes down to do you learn how to learn? School should teach you how to learn, right? Because now we have every opportunity to learn whatever we want. And I, there's, there's a strange cutoff. There's a lot of people I know who aren't going to research stuff and they're going to go figure it out. They're gonna, if they have a problem with whatever software they're using or they want to do something, they'll watch a YouTube video and they'll look it up. And then these other people that I know who won't do any of that and they'll just like ask you a question or almost as if they don't have these skills whatsoever. And I think that's the most important skill you can have is to be able to teach yourself because we can learn whatever we want, whenever we want. So for the 80% that I'm saying who go to school purely for social integration purposes, I'm essentially saying they're getting 0% any useful um, education. What we are proposing is if they essentially teach people or teach students how to learn and use, instead of just learning broad marketing, here's a project and market it. Mm-hmm. Here's your, your budget or your points or whatever and, and figure out how to get this message out to as many people as you want yeah, or as you can. Exactly. Imagine like the amount of subjects you could incorporate into that lesson. If it was like project based, like you would have to, you know, generate like some type of collateral, like material. You'd have to learn how to write effectively, communicate, like think about the budget. value, budget, like all the finance skills that go along with that. Like, I don't know, man, I learned more in the first month of starting a business, definitely the first three years than like the previous 20, whatever years of my life. Cause it's real. First of all, you don't have the option. It's not like you're trying to get on the other side of some arbitrary test just to get through like a stage. It's like, it's do or die. Like, and I think that creates like urgency and, and a sense of emotion attached to the learning, which I think studies have shown is like really important for that information actually taking hold. If it's just information, your, your brain's like, okay, this pattern isn't relevant to me. I don't need to know this. But uh, as soon as there's like meaning associated to it, that creates like a whole framework for stacking like the right information onto that in a way that, you know, first of all, it's cohesive, which is really important because learning like these broad skills in a way that doesn't actually fit together in like a meaningful way, it just doesn't prepare you for anything. So I like that idea. It should be like project based and uh, yeah, they should teach like collaboration and like teamwork, which they don't really in school. There's like group projects, but everybody knows how those go. So I don't know. Group projects. Yeah. Well, that makes me think of, because there's an idea you got to go to school until you're 18, 19 or university, you know, you go further. But what if you had skin in the game right away? What if they, they taught kids and said, well, if you can make a living, you could stop going to school at like 13. Right. You could start making a living. Yeah. And there's these stars that are emerging as kids, as gamers or coders or I don't know what. Entrepreneurs. like yeah, Entrepreneurs that, that are kids and they're doing it. So what if the whole thing needs to change? Well, going back to the babysitting, th- that's really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. The, the stars will emerge yeah. no matter what. They always have and always will. But if from a young enough age you're taught how to make a living, even if you're living at home, if you're living at home and part of your, like, your grades depend on 
your ability to generate income, you're going to learn because you want to generate that income. Mm -hmm. And if you generate that income, you, you're going to learn skills because you have to learn how to do specific things and it'll, it'll create that incentive, right? Mm -hmm. Every species needs to reproduce and find food and do whatever. And the humans need money because money contributes to the rest of all that stuff. Yep. So that wouldn't that be the ultimate motivator if I think so. It'll give you a sense of value too as a kid, right? Like all those huge entrepreneurs, they all have a common thread. I don't know if you've noticed in their stories where they talk about some experience where they were younger where there was some sort of value exchange that like was not part of my life. Like I don't remember being like entrepreneurial as a kid. Like I wasn't the lemonade stand guy. I didn't like have a paper route or any of that stuff. So like I don't know, man. I think that's a really important lesson to learn early on. It's like I can do something that's of value to the world and that means I get to capture that value in return and then do whatever I want with this money. It's like silly, right? Like the allowance doesn't teach that. The allowance is just a given. There's no value exchange there really. I guess if you're doing chores maybe, but I think like that exchange happening outside of your family is really important, like in the actual world. So I totally think like that should be built into education as well. Just that idea, like you can do whatever you want but you've got to learn how to, first of all, be really good at it. And if you're passionate, that makes that much easier. And you got to learn how to like monetize it. That's just how the world works until it doesn't anymore, but I don't see that changing anytime soon. So the question is, does everyone have that? Is that, is that an innate ability? Can it be taught? Is it, you know, is it genetic? Am I starting a podcast because, you know, it, can some future technology have predicted that, you know, 84% I would have started a podcast based on my, lineage based on you know where i come from entertainers i come from talkers i come from i don't know sex addicts circus freaks as circus, call them yeah sometimes. yes traveling circus yeah. freaks you know is that i don't think it's ubiquitous i i do think there's something innate that people have um i think much of that behavior is learnable though i really do believe that yeah i, I think if you start early enough and you change the way that you teach people about what it is to be like a contributing member of society and what's possible for, for, you know, a person like think about, there's no real like inspiration built in, into education. It's very dry. There's no like stories of, holy shit, this person like did this. You learn about like people in history and like all these boring stories and there's no real like, okay, this 13 year old started an app and sold it for $7 million. And that's amazing because it shows that there's really no limit to what you could accomplish. There's no, you know, limit of being a certain age or what value you can add or build. Like it's just, everything's at your disposal. So I think like that is a huge missing element too. What I learned early in, in high school was that I never wanted to read a book because the, the negative association with having to read and deadlines and book reports and, and reading shit I didn't care about. Uh, it just dissuaded me from reading. It, it gave me this, this idea subconsciously, I mm -hmm. guess, where books were not something that I wanted. And as soon as I started reading books in my, I guess, early 20s, it started to open my world. And I started to learn all these unbelievable things and these premonitions that I had or these these notions that I thought in my head I should deviate from, the books were actually reinforcing. What did you start reading? Uh, Good to Great was the first book. Nice. Jim Collins. Yeah. The man. And I was going through, uh, I'd taken over the business after my dad passed away. Right. And I wanted to 
instill a lot of change because I had this fire in me. Maybe it's ego. Who knows what it is? But I didn't want to just ride the wave. I wanted to create something bigger, better. I wanted to maybe impress him in the fifth dimension. You know, I, I, I wanted it. to do it. And I was hitting a lot of roadblocks. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, maybe I should be softer. Maybe my approach should change. Maybe I should listen more. And all these things that kind of softened my approach. And when I read that book, it was the people who... Jim Collins was saying the people who stick to their plan mm. and believe in the, what they want to do and keep going in a straight line rather than deviating and listening to everyone, they succeed. The ones who listen to everyone and go back and forth and back and forth and, and try to convince everyone of everything fail. Mm-hmm. And here are the graphs that show. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit. So Jim Collins turned me into a hardcore motherfucker. Which is pretty cool. That, that's a good first book to pick, by the way, like huge, amazing book. But it, like coming back to the thesis, you had like an emotional investment in, you know, some sort of outcome that you wanted to change in your life, which just created all this sort of meaning and purpose around the learning. And I'm sure like you can still picture like pages of that book. Totally. Like, which is crazy, right? Try to picture something from kindergarten to grade, whatever. The only way I passed history was cheating. Yes. Well, a lot, a lot of those kind of classes where you have to memorize things, I would just cheat. Yeah. I was just a good cheater. Right. I would just figure out who to sit next to. I made sure that, you know, I brought something to the table, you know, whether it was invite them to a party or, you know. Uh, Always a salesman. Whatever it was. Well, yeah, you yeah. got to negotiate. And my yeah, brother's yeah. even better at me than Oh, this. I can imagine. And, and that's how I got good grades in those classes that I didn't want to spend time, you know, learning. Yeah. Uh, but back to the, the Jim Collins, I was invested. Yeah. Because I had a purpose. I yeah. wanted to accomplish something. And you had a filter, right? You were taking over the business. So there's a specific yeah. purpose for you to learn this. And there was a specific reason for doing that. I don't know, man. I think there's something there. What was the what was the first book that impacted you? And did you have that preconceived notion that, that or were you, did you not like books? No, I was the same as you. Anything forced upon you. I mean, imagine if like you made all your listeners listen to your music. You know, I don't think you'd make many fans that way. Even if you hit the right numbers, like you like sit down and you have to listen to the song, uh, write a report on it at the end. Like it changes the relationship that you have with art. If, if books are the same, you know, the same type of art. And I, I feel like all those authors would be like, what the fuck is going on here? Like you're making all these kids read my book. Like that's such bullshit. Like they have no choice in the matter. Um, so yeah, I think the, the first book for me, I was the same way. I had no, uh, I was a fast learner, which actually I think turned out to be a disadvantage. Um, now I would say it's definitely not. It's a skill that I, I, I put into action and I leverage every day. But in school, it taught me like laziness and complacence. And uh, that as soon as I got into university, it was just not compatible with like the, the breadth of, of information you have to learn. Okay, so you couldn't hack it anymore. No, man. The skill, like I would literally, like I passed, but that was it. I I would study for probably 24 to 48 hours before every exam. And it was like biochemistry. It was like, like complex, like a lot of stuff to learn, very like deep. And that was just like not, it was a terrible model for, for getting any value out of like the, the years that I spent there. So like coming back to the book thing, like my first book that I read that really kind of hit home as like, oh, books can be like something actionable. And they can have like a lasting influence on your life was uh, Tony Robbins book, Awaken the Giant Within. And like, like them or hate them, 
not really relevant to this conversation because it was the first time that I had like sort of shifted my perspective in a very meaningful, purposeful way inward and started like assessing, okay, what are my patterns? How am I thinking? Um, you know, what are my beliefs? What am I doing here? Really? I was kind of on autopilot. That was, do you have a moment like that where you snapped out of autopilot? I was in autopilot for many years. Yeah. And I didn't think I was, uh, so the moment that I snapped out of autopilot was, it must have been when I was 27 or 28 and I was really grinding it and I was living hard. I was doing a lot of work, partying hard. I was, I was doing it all hard and I only realized that, only realized that I was an autopilot after I turned off the machine a little bit. Mm-hmm. After I backed off the throttle, I, was, I, was, I realized that I wasn't present at all for years it was just one party to the next, one dopamine fix to the next, just nonstop. Mm. And then when I finally got that that piece, it's almost right after I met you. Mm-hmm. I was like right at the tail end. Not a coincidence. Not a, nothing's a coincidence. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's that's when it was. Yeah. And so the that realization for you, where what was it around reading that book? Yeah, I don't even know if it was like the content. I mean, it's a good book. I, I've recommended it to a few people. Very specifically, I, I don't push Tony Robbins on people. Um, but uh, yeah, it was mostly just this process of like seeing someone think through um, like the processes that go on in your mind. Can with, you give me an example? Uh, good example. Um, so... I used to be, I'm still like this to an extent, I'm learning to be better at it, but I'm someone where like, if I had, you know, a conversation with like friction in it, it would just play on like repeat in my mind. And I thought that was just like, this is just who I am. Like I'm fucked. I'm stuck with this. You know, you do something wrong and you just repeat it, repeat it. You you can't let that feeling in your stomach. And it's just like, you lie awake at night thinking about it. I mean, it still happens sometimes, but like, he outlines like tools in the book, like actual tactics, which I thought was really interesting for like dealing with that and visualizing it and then distorting the visual and like just changing your relationship with thoughts. That was the first time that that had been introduced to me. I kind of thought like your brain just, you know, went the way it goes. And it does to a large extent. Like we could have a whole conversation about free will and, and that's a whole different ball game. But like, I think there's, you know, through inputs, like as you like to call them, which I think is a great metaphor, um, you can really change your relationship with your thoughts. And, and I think like that is everything if you want to, you know, change your life in any sort of deliberate way. And so he made it actionable and yeah. he made you understand it. And you now attach a different narrative. So rather than a narrative of, oh, this is just how I am, this is going to last for 36 hours mm-hmm. and I'm going to just ruminate yeah. versus understanding perhaps he was, he was spelling out where it comes from, what it means on a biological level. I don't know if he was saying that. He doesn't have that angle to it. Okay. I I find scientifically whenever he steps over that line, I'm always like, okay, a little bit, not his strength. Um, But yeah, just breaking down that there's, first of all, a lot of things that happen in your brain. A lot of them are like habitual and very like pattern based and we just get stuck in our patterns. And that was a, a really cool moment for me reading that book and just realizing like that doesn't have to be that way. And, uh, what was I doing at the time? I think I was like, yeah, on the artist path of like, okay, I want to be an artist. 
what the fuck does that mean? Like what the amount of stuff that you're going to have to get a hold of mentally, like to actually bridge the gap between being, you know, just a guy playing songs and making music and an actual like, you know, artist doing this for a career is staggering. And if you don't think through it, I mean, like you're just dust in the wind. So I, I see that the, well, I'm glad that, 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 that book was able to allow yourself to have those kind of conversations with yourself, right? Because it's cool to like put the, the, you know, the gift wrapping on it and says, yeah, I'm an artist. This is, this is what I am. But to actually process and say, well, how will I make a living? Like, it's all cute that I have this, you know, persona, but how can this actually develop into something? And did he, he, that book or whatever you read from it allowed you to think about how you could do that or what, or that you needed to think about it? I think it planted a seed. It's not like after I put the book down, like, uh, top of the charts, let's go. Everything worked out. Definitely not how it went down, but, uh, I think it planted a seed that eventually made me realize, first of all, that's not the path that I'm like really meant to go down, which is really cool. And, uh, yeah, I think just that transition of like, you know, just flipping my attention inward and, uh, starting to really dig at who the fuck am I as a person? I'd never done that. I know, you know, there's like, there's some, I, I think some people, I believe everybody goes through that process in some, some form or another. And I think some people are triggered by trauma. Some people are triggered by some stress or challenge or whatever it is. For me, it just kind of happened. I picked up the book and like looked inside and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> it's like turning the lights on in a dark room. The first second the lights are on, like everything's a fucking mess. It's all over the place. Overwhelming. And it's terrifying. It's overwhelming. You're like, this is what I've been living in. Like, holy shit, what am I going to do now? There's a million things to think about. Whereas before I wasn't consciously thinking about anything. That was a really weird shift and super overwhelming and it's still overwhelming, but you know, eventually you start organizing things on the desk and moving papers around and things start to resemble some sort of structure. So yeah, it was like, a fun process. Like this room. Remember what it yes, looked like before? I do. And then, okay, we're starting a podcast. Okay. We start cleaning up. We're going to start moving things and there you go. Now it's nice now and organized. It. It's all clean. Fucking spaceship. Yeah. Spaceship. So now I'm going to give you a classic uh, softball. Not a softball, but did you, did the book, the, the book illuminate the room or were you at a point in your life where you were starting to understand maybe on a subconscious level that it was time to turn on the lights and you subconsciously grabbed the book, you know, what came before, what came first, you yes. know, and how do we know? And it's, it's not, it's, it's kind of like an open question. It's not a really yes or no, because I don't know if there's any answering that. I think... You nailed it. Definitely, first of all, like the choice of input was uh, lucky. I picked it off the shelf, read the cover. That was it, right? So like that could have been anything. That could have been any book, not any book, but there was that moment that, you know, got me could to have been the 50 store, Shades of Gray. Right? Yeah, right? Who knows where I'd be right now? Yeah. <laughs> Writing fucking fan fiction somewhere. Or, or I don't yeah. know, being some kind of dom or something. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, uh, there was that moment of something calling to me. I'll give you that. There was something calling to me that, uh, I mean, otherwise, why, why would you sit down and read this book about, you know, you were ready finding something within yourself. So I, I, there was a thread. I started pulling at it. And uh, I think the choice of input was really lucky and really good that it's like not total nonsense because a lot of that industry is just kind of total bullshit that's not really actionable or helpful in, in any way. So 
yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy with how, uh, how that happened. And then I had another such moment pretty recently, like I guess around two years ago when I started meditating and that was like a whole other layer. Like you re- even, so that first transition was from like total autopilot, not being in like conscious, uh, awareness of my thoughts at all. Just how, like, how old were you by the way? When I read that book. Yeah. I'm so bad with time. Um, I don't know, 20, 25. In that range. Okay. Closer to 20. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so full autopilot, like to, okay, I can be, you know, I can be aware of my thoughts. Uh, And then starting to meditate and realizing like you didn't have the lights on at all. You think you did. You had this like tiny little flashlight shining on like one little small area of your mind. That's like your center of focus or whatever. But like, it's still very much running on autopilot. It's just autopilot that you're like aware of. And then meditation started to, to uncover this whole world of like another layer of depth to that, to that, uh, that stream of, of consciousness, I guess, which is still, I think it's one that I'll be learning for the rest of my life. I really enjoy it. And so maybe the first, the first phase of life, let's say, was completely unconscious, as you say. Second phase was you got the flashlight and you started to see something and you're like, oh, I can, I can start working on this. But then when you started meditating, phase three, you realized that there was not enough light to cover everything that you needed to see. And so did meditation almost open you up to starting to understand that there's no real control, there's just real-time adaptation there's you know surfing the wave going with the flow so when you're in let's say phase two mm-hmm. phase two is it's like you're aware of what you want to do uh you're going to control this you're going to change that because you can see it yeah. and now you're so you want to change something but then when you, you you meditate and you start discovering that there's so much that you don't know and there's so much that you can never know that perhaps the best way of being is just by understanding or having faith in yourself that you have what it takes to survive whatever is going to happen. Did, I don't, did you ever I think, think so. about it like that? Or, I, I, or is that where you're at now, maybe? That's where I'm at, I think. I'd love to get there. But understanding <laughs> yeah. that, like under, not being so, there. Yeah, but, but Me, sort of, sort okay. of. Let me, let me describe what it's like for me. And then, because uh, I think we probably have different experiences with it, which is what's so cool about, like you meditate every day? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it was like... Um, in that period of kind of awareness, pre-meditation, there was no like dissociation from my thoughts, right? You're engaged in every thought. You're feeling it fully. You're riding that wave for sure, but like not really in control of where it's going, right? So like as much as you're aware of all that, you're not truly like an observer to that process. You're, you're one with that process. Right, so the stream of whatever emotions, thoughts you're going in, you're it's reactive. like a fucking roller coaster. You're on the tracks and you're following it around. You've got your eyes open and it's cool. You're seeing all this stuff and you, you know, you recognize. Okay, I'm feeling this because of this or whatever. But to take that from, and I'm super early in this transition, to take that from being fully engaged and like encapsulated with those thoughts and those emotions and stuff like that, to being able to observe them, like to create a distance between like stimulus and response that is, you know, the option to choose how you want to respond to that stimulus. That's what I'm building toward now. How can I lengthen that gap? So I'm not 
you know, a direct byproduct of like these emotions and these thoughts and everything like that, which I don't think ever stop just running. I think they're always just going right. But to be able to separate from them as like an observer and then take some conscious decision about how I want to respond or what I want to do or, you know, what I want the next thought to be, if I have any agency over that, that's what I'm working toward is that gap. Like real time control. Like, yeah. Right. So we say that there's no control, but I, I hear what you're saying. And that's really the way that I see it as well. It's being able to receive it, process it, process it, and then choose which, which direction you want to move in. Exactly. Imagine and, what a power that would be to be able to have that like level of control over impulses, over urges, over, you know, reactions to something that someone said, like I'm still a very reactionary, reactionary person. Like I still in the moment, like get fucked up by like the things that people say and like, my opinions and stuff like that, but I'm learning to just kind of stretch that a little bit to take a bit more control in how I want to respond. Yeah. I feel, I feel the exact same way in getting to, it's a muscle I feel, and I feel like we can develop it the more that we practice it. And, and the other elements of our life, our lives have to be kind of stable for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Like I started this, this podcast a few weeks ago and there's been a lot of back and forth, a lot of stress, you know, editing this and that. And are we going to make the deadline? Or da, 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 da. And so I found myself for the last few weeks being way less present yeah. and way less in control of my decisions or reactions. So I'm feeling that. But now as I'm, I'm starting to ease off of it, I'm, I'm starting to relax a little more and I'm getting back into it. But always when it comes to, let's say, someone else saying something that's maybe not not nice or not great or whatever it may be the act of understanding where they are when they say that. Right. And the, the process of running a simulation of where they're coming from. Are they aware of what they're saying? Are they in a stressed situation? Do they have some kind of uh, stress in their life or trauma or this and that? And, and then once you start playing that game, um, what they say holds less weight Totally. It's like real-time empathy. It, it's true. It's true yeah. empathy. And to do that, you have to step out of your reaction and your emotion to be able to like, yes. you know, get in their mindset. And that's, a, that's a superpower if you can do that. Yeah, that, that's a superpower. And I, I think that's the most important, important place that people can be. Cause I think that's the only way if people can learn this skill, the, the world would be a different place yes. because you see how literally divided everything is, right? Literally 50-50. And there's the, the 50 on one side pointing the finger saying that the other 50 are, are stupid and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And the other 50 are saying the exact same about the others. And if they could observe each other, they'd say, okay, well, why does that person think that way? Perhaps their education, their environment, their students, their 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 genetics, their whatever the hell it is. Mm-hmm. And if they could understand that they're just vessels receiving inputs that created whatever persona they think they are, yeah. then they could just be less pissed. What do you think the remedy is to that? Because it I think it's time sensitive because the the chasm between like let's just take the left and the right example yeah. that you just gave, like that chasm is growing. Right. In both directions. It's not like uh, the right is, you know, this group of nut jobs that are just 
keep falling off the map. Like the left is becoming equally ridiculous in a lot of different ways. And that gap is growing, which makes it that much harder to empathize. I think the further that gap is, the harder it is to like put yourself in the mindset and try to understand like someone's beliefs that are very different than yours. So what's the remedy? Honestly, uh, I hope that my mind changes about this, but I think the only remedy is some kind of uh, uh, like neurotransmitter or like Neuralink thing that can just, I don't know, rewire your brain. Something external. Because it takes, think about all the work and time that it's taken to get you to a place where you're just on the verge of becoming the observer. All these people are stressed to the tits. All these people are are working paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, They're super stressed. They're... Um, they're not aware of their inputs whatsoever. You know, if, if, if a hardcore left moved to a place that's hardcore right, within six months, they're eating that Kool-Aid. They're drinking that Kool-Aid. They're, they're not aware of that. How the hell are you going to make them aware of that? Mm-hmm. Can they ever be aware of that? Yeah. Without, without some kind of... I think you might be right. Some kind of external... You know, because before I was, I was the, the biggest proponent of, oh, we got to learn, we got to teach, and this, that. Right. But it's very difficult. People, and it's not because people are stupid, it's because people are stressed. Their systems, their internal inflammation, their egos, all mm-hmm. of these things are running the show. The, the yep. mach- they're in the passenger seat of their own car. So they're just reactive. Right. So what can you do? You can you can make a lot of money because you know where they're going to go. You know what buttons to push. Which is part of the problem, right? Is that the technology is driving people in opposite directions intentionally, like just through those reward mechanisms. Like you get, you know, you get connected with stuff that resonates with whatever your current messaging is and slightly to the extreme of that. that and it just pulls you in that direction. And I think that's what happens with people like in these echo chambers it's weird because you'd think that through connecting people, let's say through something like Facebook, those connection, connections would naturally make us like more empathetic. Um, they would you know, help expose you to new ideas and new people and new things and like this whole connected like world, but it's the exact opposite. It drives, it like polarizes people. It drives you into this echo chamber of the same ideas and it gets like the scope of what you engage with becomes narrower and narrower and narrower. And then it gives you what you react to most. Right. And I, I think in terms of bandwidth, we are limited. Like there's only so much information we could take in. So we're just getting more like refined uh, uh, corn syrup. Is that what it is? Yeah. You know, we're, we're just getting a more refined drip that's giving us more of what mm-hmm. we need. We're spending more time on the computers, more time on the screens, less time out in the street with someone who has an opposing political view that you can realize if you're really interacting with them, that they're nice people with a nice family. Right. And they're doing good things and they're a good member of society. Mm-hmm. You know, like literally every state is 50-50 or 48-52. It's so tight. It's weird. It's, it's so tight. Because they're very different, you know. You have to stand for very different things to vote either way. And it's so weird because it, it becomes an ego thing. What am I? Um, if someone finds out that I voted for this, it means that I don't do that. There's no gray and life is gray. Mm-hmm. It's not black or white. It's not yeah. binary. Yeah. But I think our simple minds are only capable of binary. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why we're so tribal. That's why, we, that's why we're still so primitive, even though we have cell phones and we can you know, search for whatever we want. We're super primitive. Yeah. So that's why 
if we can increase our bandwidth and run bigger simulations with more data, then we could empathize better because we would have a wider scope of information. Mm -hmm. But right now we're just simple monkeys and it's either good or bad. You're like me or you're not me. Yeah. And, and that's why we're no different than like 2000 years ago. No, we're no different than 20,000 years ago. Yeah. We're exactly the same. So until we get upgraded, I don't, I, I don't think anything will change. That was a recent switch for me. I realized um, how much of my time and attention had been hijacked by things that I was not deliberately controlling. So it's like the, the analogy or like a metaphor for like the, the thought process that I just described of like you're on full autopilot and like your thoughts are just running and you're one with those thoughts and stuff like that. Like in technology, the way that you engage with it now, it's not like deliberate choices. Everything's fed to you. Right. And this stream of shit, like, yeah, you have a couple choices of like where, which particular channel you point your attention at, but then it's just a stream of shit. That's like decided by algorithms that have a sole purpose of generating revenue. And that's completely not aligned with whatever the best information to provide you with is. And it's definitely not aligned with whatever type of growth you want to go uh, forward with in your life. So that's why I was like, I think we both had this, this conversation. Like I'm getting rid of my cell phone. I don't want it. I don't want a smartphone anymore because I'm not good enough. I don't have enough discipline to just put it down or like limit my time on it. I know that about myself. I've learned that about myself. Like, I think we're both like, we're extremists and, uh, like I'll have days where it's like four or five hours on my cell phone of just like mindless bullshit. And like, I realized like I was starting to develop like some thoughts and, and some beliefs and things like that that were not my, you know, what I want to hold. And, uh, yeah, so I'm getting just a result. You became, or you could see signs of you becoming your inputs. Yeah. And your inputs are based on your recommended on YouTube. Yep. And then, so, right. Cause I, I know, like, let's say I lean one side or the other. I'm aware that I lean on one side or the other because I'm consuming more of that type of content. I am, uh, I, I perhaps identify more with the certain, cause it, it comes with identification too. Like, who would you rather be like? And you choose. It's either one side or the other side. But I'm aware also that I can separate myself from it. And I, I instead of being so emotionally invested in, in different, like we're, we're talking about politics. I'm not even into politics. It's mm -hmm. just like, it's just relevant now. But I can just view these things the, like a sports game. Like, like, a, yeah. like a Super Bowl. I, I don't know what's up. Okay, I like their colors more, so... That's who I'm going to go with. But really, at the end of the day, the outcome of that um, that game will not change my life in any way. And if I put too much credence in it, it's just going to take away from my quality of life. It'll separate me from others. It it it's nothing but purely negative. Mm -hmm. It just creates bubbles for people to to fight in. Yeah, it's wild. But the cell phone thing, yeah. and I told, I told you to save it when you texted me I don't know, today or yesterday, if I got that phone. Try to ask you a simple question. And you're like, save it for the podcast. Yeah, motherfucker. Yeah. What, what phone? What's it called? The light phone. The light. I ordered it. Yeah. But, you know, they're uh, a new company, so it's like it's going to take a month or two to get it. Okay. So I should be getting it mid-November. That's disappointing because I just ordered it, oh, and yeah. I was hoping it was like two weeks away. So Now you're fucked. You're going to get it in 2021. Yeah. But the light phone is a phone with no apps. It's very cool. Yeah, there's no noise. Um, 
It's like a phone designed to help you. It performs the basic functions of a phone. It's got text. It's got uh, calling. You can put like MP3s on it. Um, but yeah, there's no there's no applications. There's no browser. There's no way to like connect with that stream of bullshit. Is there Spotify? No, no. So like now uh, I have a friend who's like going through the same process. We're just like trying to find replacements for all the actually good things that we benefit from. Like Spotify yeah. is awesome. Like there's nothing in my mind negative about Spotify except for their compensation model. Um, but there's like these little mini iPods. I forget what they're called. Mighty something. And it basically like you can stream uh podcast and you can stream Spotify on them. And that's all they do. It's like a little iPod nano. Okay. So finding like little replacements for that. Well, and then, for, yeah. Well, for the most part, let's say I'm doing cardio or something. Yeah or I'm watching TV at night, I usually watch podcasts. So that's okay. But basically with the phone, and I've been going through this a lot recently, and I'm glad you brought it up because I forgot I even ordered that phone. But I find myself getting lost in the scroll, yeah, getting lost in the DMs, questioning whether I should you know, be in a relationship or not based on interactions like, really non-nutritious interactions going mm -hmm. on and kind of looking at kind of like a drug addict and discounting all like positive real-time stuff that I have going on. And it's like, if that noise didn't exist, this wouldn't even be something that I'm considering in my head. It's crazy. I don't know if I said that clearly enough. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's a part of it for me too. Like whatever the dials are that you tune constantly, like in your mind to, you know, be happy or fulfilled or successful. For me, it was like, just, it turned all of them down, slightly down. Some of them like significantly down. And after a while you're just like, why the fuck am I doing this? For like the entertainment value or the, whatever that like dopamine hit is when I like, it's a quick, it's this, a quick like, hit. The body's a drug addict, right? Crazy though. Because the body's motivated by fixes or else yeah. like, I have this crude, I guess, analogy or example. It's like, it if it didn't feel good to take a shit, you wouldn't take a shit and you would explode. Right. Right. And we wouldn't be here today. Yeah. Everything we do is motivated by a feel good chemical. And our body wants the quickest chemical for the least amount. Mm -hmm. It's the ultimate capitalist, our body. And it forgets if you give it enough time. But we live in such an abundant, uh, content-filled, dopamine-driven world that whether you're going to the grocery store or the gas station or your phone or whatever, there's whatever you want and more. Yeah. Like we have to develop a sense of no rather than a sense of how do we find stuff because right. we came from for millions of years that led up to our evolution it was scarcity. There was no abundance. So it was like, when you eat, eat as much as you can. Mm -hmm. But now we're here and we're in a world where for, for no money, you can eat as much garbage as you want. With one button now. With one button. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Uber Eats. It's gone, dude. It's With go the phone, it goes away. Yeah, it goes away. It, it does go away. And I, I've, I've been deleting apps and, I've, and I've, I'm, I'm on the, we're on the same journey here. It's good. And I think that phone is going to be really healthy, mm -hmm. extremely healthy. Yeah. Because I'd rather spend my time in real time like this. Yeah. Having real meaningful contact and interactions. Yeah. And 
when we're doing that, I think that's the difference between like a podcast or versus a reality show or a sweet potato versus a chocolate bar mm. is that the third party vibes that someone's going to get from watching this yeah. or the third party vibes that we get from watching a great podcast adds value to our system. Mm. It, it, it's an input that has a, a dopamine fix as because you always need that, but it's actually nourishing us. It's nourishing our subconscious. It's teaching us something that we can do. It's inspiring us. Yeah. If you're watching porn or getting spiced in the DMs or just watching cat videos all day long, it's giving you a fix, but it's only making you hungrier. Right. It's never actually feeding you. So you're starving as you're consuming, mm -hmm. right? Like you eat a bag of chips, there's no nutrition in there. You're going to be hungrier after 20 minutes than before you started eating those chips. Right. And so rampant obesity, uh, diabetes, sickness, all this shit, all this inflammation, all this stress yeah. takes away from what we were talking about earlier, people's ability to become the observer rather than the, the reactor. But it's an interesting point though, like, cause if you use that as an analogy, it's the exact same thing, right? Where there's this input um, that for whatever reason doesn't jive with like our digestive system you eat a bunch of sugar you eat a bunch of garbage like you're gonna have measurable changes like to your biology to your physiology to your biochemistry to all these things that lead to bad clear like symptoms of whatever that core problem was right so like there, there there's actually a feedback mechanism that's like oh, i'm getting fatter or like i don't feel good or like i eat that bag of chips and i feel like a piece of shit afterward i don't find the phone is quite the same way we haven't really developed a clear relationship between whatever the downside, like downstream effects are. And then that input of like being on your phone every day, I think we're going to figure those out eventually. I feel it. I feel it too, but it's, it's a little bit scary to me because it's not immediate. Like if I, we still, I still have nights where I just go ham and I order from like four different places on Uber eats and just have like this King's feast of bullshit. And then like, I immediately hate myself. And that means I'm not going to do that every single day. I'm going to do that once or twice a month. And it's like getting less and less and less and less. Um, but you have that feedback immediately on the phone. It's not quite like that. Like, oh, sure. Maybe after like a crazy, like four hour deep dive through like the shadows of YouTube, you feel that way. But, you know, an hour here, an hour there, you don't really feel that immediate response of like, oh, I'm a piece of shit for doing that. Okay. That's a good point. I know what you mean now, because it's, it's like, there's a parasite that's taking slowly. Yeah. You know, it's in there and its strength is that you don't notice it, but it's always pulling. And if you were to evaluate yourself, let's say over a month or two months and you'd have some kind of graph or something, you'd see definitely a degradation in your relationships, in uh, how excited you are in general about the person you're with, about the work you're doing, about the quality of the positivity of your thoughts. Mm. All of these things are, are definitely deteriorating as you're consuming this content. It's not immediate, it's like cigarettes. Yeah. I feel like in 20 years, we'll look back at social media scrolling as if it was like cigarettes. I hope so, that'd be awesome. Because cigarettes is, is the same formula, right? There's no immediate feel like shit. There, it's, it, people smoke and they don't stop because it's like, unless they get cancer, mm -hmm. which is not even close to everybody. And it's delayed too, there's a huge delay. Huge delay. Yeah. So that's, it took forever for cigarettes to, to be understood as shit for you. Yeah. Doctors were even recommending cigarettes. They had specific brands that were, were good for you. No, wow. That's epic. Yeah. I love, I love that. So I mean, like, we're, that's, 
what, 50, 60 years ago. Not that far. That is nothing. Yeah, I mean, our parents were alive. And I guess the more you become an observer, the more you understand how ridiculous we are. Mm -hmm. And not like other people are ridiculous. We are equally as ridiculous. Because even as we become observers, now when we're doing stuff that we're observing, but we don't have the discipline to stop, we're watching the train wreck that just happened in front of us. And we're just like, fuck it. I want to watch it burn. (laughs) Turn it up. Right? Because you can't. You can't stop it. It's like the discipline tank has has emptied out for the day. Yeah. And it's like, oh fuck, it's only six PM. It's gonna be a long night. <laughs> Here we go. And I'm not gonna Buckle feel away. I'm not gonna I'm gonna be on an uphill battle for the next two days. I'll be coming back from that that dark side of the moon. The hike is gonna be long and cold. Now you know the price you're paying at least though. The price of admission for that. Yeah. And and you can and when you're in a shit mood, you know you're still the observer. So you can kind of laugh. Yeah. Right, you can, you can, I can be with my friends, or I could be w- whatever, and be, and say, oh, I, I, I fucked myself yesterday, and I feel like this, but that's just the price. That's just the price of admission. Yeah, and there's something liberating about understanding that there is where it's not just oh, life sucks. Oh, I couldn't help it. I could help it, but I chose not to. Yes, and I think that's a power. It's huge, because because I don't. Yeah. I think as de- unless we get some kind of like other help. I don't think there's any stopping that. Yeah, agreed. That's why you got to put stop gaps, I think. That's really important. And getting rid of the phone is like the ultimate stop gap. Yeah, the like phone, f- the people. For me, the first thing with like Uber Eats was a problem. Like I was ordering Uber Eats every single night. And that was like, obviously I'm not ordering great shit at that point. So I had to start with um, like uninstalling the app. So every time I wanted that, didn't stop me. I've uninstalled and installed it probably a thousand times now. Yeah, right? Welcome to the club. But it was one step between me and just ordering it that <laughs> even though it didn't really slow me down at all, it got me to trigger a thought process of it's not mindless anymore. I had to install the app and tell myself I'm a piece of shit at like, I don't know, <laughs> three steps throughout, like whatever it takes to get to that order button. Yeah. But it's like putting those in, I think gave me enough clarity about how I really feel about ordering a breeds every night to order it less and less. And now I got rid of my account and then I just started making my girlfriend order it. We'll find a way like, and then I got DoorDash and then I got it. So it's like, it never really ends, but that's why I need to get rid of the actual mechanism, which is the phone. For yeah. Me. It's the shelf rule. You're getting yeah. rid of the shelf. The shelf will always be clean if there's no shelf. Yeah. And, and that's what we got to do because we can't help ourselves. Mm. But if we can understand like the shelf rule. It's yeah. Cool. It's, it's from the, uh, the old manufacturing days. You know, we set up this like Six Sigma stuff or this lean manufacturing stuff where the tools were outlined and all this stuff and it was all clean. So every workstation had exactly what it needed to complete the task as efficiently as possible. Mm. And that's that's how the, the Japanese came in and destroyed the American car industry. Nice, like Tyrell and those guys. Yes, yeah, because that's how they that's how they built cars. That's mm. why the quality control was unbelievable compared to the American ones because simply because of their processes. So I was long story short, I was I, I was implicating that. But there was this example of there was a shelf there and people kept putting coffee on it and, and just putting extra components. And every time they didn't need something, it would go there. And after, at the end of the week, the, the shelf would just pile up. So I, over the weekend, I cleaned it up and I removed the shelf. People and say anything? They didn't even notice. It's crazy. They didn't even notice, but there was never anything on the shelf and shit yeah. just stayed in place. So now you can learn to be disciplined and fight the urge to use the app. Or remove the thing from your life that has the app. Yeah. That you can't. And 
you can't order food from your TV. Maybe you can, but I'll find a way. That's a major barrier. <laughs> And because it's the subconscious, I, I visualize yeah, yeah. it as the subconscious mind that wants something. Yeah. But sure. if you create too many barriers for it, it will just, it'll be like, all right, mm-hmm. I'm done. And mm-hmm. I think getting rid of the phone is a huge, I, it's a huge pro move. I'm really interested in two things. First is like, what do I fill that craving with? I want to make sure that that's something productive. So I'm going to be very conscious as soon as I get rid of the phone, I just don't pick up some other bullshit habit that satisfies that same need for like a constant stream of stuff. Right. So I want to be super conscious in that period right after getting rid of it, fill that with something productive. Um, And then the second thing is, what was I going to say? Like you're worried about, yeah, no, the second thing was like, what am I going to apply that discipline to? Cause I think discipline is like both a tank and a muscle, right? It's like a muscle in the sense that, as you exercise it, you start to build patterns that allow you to be disciplined. Um, you start learning how disciplined you can be and that there's a much greater ceiling on that. And that kind of expands the tank. But I still think that it's a tank that ex- like depletes itself over the course of a day. And sometimes it's like over the course of a week and you just, you know, you have, a. I still have weeks where I like go so hard on Monday and Tuesday that like the rest of the week is shot because I feel like I just expended all this discipline. So I'm curious to see if I'm not constantly using that to, you know, not order something or not go on my phone or not do this or that, what am I going to point that at that is going to benefit me in some way? Well, I think you'll figure out as you go. Yeah. You know, and I, I wouldn't put too much pressure on yourself to, to do something productive because that's just going to deplete the tank as well. Yeah. So it's like, what if you can do something that's leisurely, if that's how you say it, Yeah. like, like read, Yeah. read a book. You're still, you're still giving yourself that that juice but stream of content but but it's better juice yeah right or maybe it's more you know cuddle time with the lady yeah you know maybe maybe it's writing songs with that pretty new guitar that you got 100 percent. all good options all good options you know watching a podcast it's it's better than scrolling endlessly 100 percent. and but it's constant fine-tuning there's no oh i replaced this and now i'm good no, we're never good. Man. No, we're never good. No, we're always until there's some kind of technological breakthrough that we can attach to ourselves. I think the greatest superpower we can have until then is recognizing um, how shit we are at things, mm. recognizing that we have no phone control. So, what can we do to eliminate the need to fight the phone? Yeah, get rid of the phone. One hundred percent. You know, and, and you're this is you, man. This is yeah. all you. It's like keto for me. That's why keto works. That's why it's a good diet for me because it doesn't leave you with a whole lot of options and there's not really gray area. It's like, it's quantified. You know, there's a certain amount of net carbs, which automatically excludes like all these foods that you shouldn't be eating. There's no like choice. And I need that. I can't do like a, let's just eat healthy diet that goes out the window so fast. So hopefully the phone is like the equivalent of that. It's just the keto diet of, of running your life. Yeah. It's about finding what works for your given situation, for your given programming right for what you are and that's why it's so funny when people say the ultimate diet or this is the ultimate strategy Mm -hmm. or this we're all we're all unique in that we have these specific experiences and genetics that make us who we are Mm -hmm. so there's many different ways to do it so anyone who says this is the ultimate they're either full of shit or they just don't get it yeah but for me, tracking calories uh, has always has been the best way for me to do it because 
it's if crazy. I have, if I have a given set of calories and I have to hit a certain amount of protein and, you know, my carbs and fats and I set them, then I have a lot of fun filling that up. Yeah. And if I can fill that up with whatever the fuck I want, then I'm, I'm lean. Yeah. I'm strong. I look good. I feel good. Uh, keto, I can never keep up. I can never keep up keto more than a month. And then I crash and burn for a long time. And then I go extreme again. But I look back at like, let's say the best physique I ever had, 2017. And I look back at my fitness pal from back then. And I was, I was eating a high protein, high carb, medium fat diet. And it goes against all of my carnivore, keto, all that shit. But I was very productive. Yeah. I felt great. I didn't binge that much because I was always giving myself a drip. Yep. Right? So I wasn't removing anything. But like you said, or like we said, different strokes for different folks. Yeah. I couldn't do the calorie counting. I couldn't do my fitness pal. It fucking ruined it for me. <laughs> it was such a wrench. And like, it, it made it work. It was like going It was like going to school, being told to read a book. That's how it felt about dieting and nutrition and stuff like that. It took all the like reason out of it. And like my connection to it, it was really, I didn't, and, I didn't and vibe I, with it. Yeah. And I feel you, yeah. I feel it because it doesn't work for a lot of people, but I have this like, uh, I have this love for it because it, it makes me feel accountable mm. from it, from hitting that checklist every day. It gives me this, this dopamine fix of like, yeah, I accomplished this. It's kind of like a game. It's like budgeting. Oh, what can I fit in there? Right. What can I do? Oh, I can have a pop tart in there. Yeah. It's like how art, like the best art comes from like constraints. Exactly. Like those, those guardrails are what creates the best environment like to experiment and, and do things and, and actually have it turn out in a meaningful way. That's like, cool. Like, I didn't see it the same way. I saw it as like a speed limit. But that's totally fine. You don't have to see it any other way. You just have to do the thing that gets you the results that you need. There's a different strategy for everyone. That's why there's people on hardcore, like raw vegan diets who thrive. There's people on carnivore diets who eat nothing but meat, nose to tail, as they say, and they thrive. And there's people who, if it fits your macros, who thrive. Yeah. And then there's people who do everything who are fucking failing. So who knows? You tried the carnivore diet? Uh, I did a little bit. For how long? I can never keep it up. About a month. That's a long time though. Yeah. Just me. And I felt really good, but I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't keep it up. Are there like, who is the most, like, what's the longest stretch of doing a carnivore diet that's, like, noteworthy? I know people who've dabbled in it or done a month. There's this lady, there, like, I think, who's been doing it for 10 years. All right, that'll do. How um, is she doing? She looks amazing. You believe it? That's so weird, though. Like, what <laughs> we would have to be wrong about from a nutrition perspective for her to be doing okay and for that not to be just some freak anomaly of, like, her genetics is pretty substantial. Well, there's never been any research done on it because who's who's doing it right like right. all our data is based on what we think it's all these it's like a stack of assumptions about we need this and we need this and we need them in this balance and all this stuff yeah because based on on this balance of things this is optimal right and based on our experience but no one's been like what if i didn't eat any of that yeah because forever they said fat was bad yeah but they they weren't counting they, they didn't understand that if you have high fat and high carb you're fucking your system and you're gonna destroy yourself right but you can eat keto and be totally fine mm -hmm. But back in the day, fat was bad. But they didn't understand that if you're mixing fats and sugars, you're, you're really fucking yourself. That's why people on a, on a 
let's say raw vegan diet or like high sugar, like crazy. There's no fats in there and there seemed to be okay. Yeah. Who was that guy? Uh, you sent me his podcast. He was like really aggressive about it. Who said like, you don't deserve variety. Remember that guy? You don't. He was big on fasting. He had his like fast uh, concoction, like this mix of salts and stuff like that. Oh, uh, snake diet guy. Snake diet guy. Oh, where's he? Cole now? Robinson. Yeah, is he still alive? First of all, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, He's healthy. helped a lot of people. He's thriving. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it's like keto, but on steroids. And right. yeah. So this guy is is amazing. He's hilarious. He his people get results. Amazing. But they're they fast for days. Yeah, like three days, and they. It's not just carnivore. Like I think he he's been evolving his thing, but he's, he's a guy with like good intentions. Steak and carrots was what he was eating for a long time. Yeah, Cole Robinson. Yeah, uh, the snake diet. Cool dude. Very cool dude. Yeah, and he's making an impact. It actually helped me with the fasting a lot. Yeah. It helped me a lot too. It allowed me to understand right. a lot. And and these guys on the on the extremes, there's there's something to be learned there because yeah. they're doing the research right. for us. They might not be super. Uh, they not, may not be completely right, but we don't really know. Mm-hmm. It's like working for him. He's thriving. He feels good. He's helping people. Yeah. The net benefit of him being in the world is there. Which is really cool. Because a lot of the people that just put forth like, oh, this is the best diet. This is the ultimate workout plan. It's like very bullshit. It's all about them. With him, it's like all about the people that he's helping. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah. he's. Re- I, I love watching the guy. I haven't watched him in a while just because he's always screaming and like a lot. got a headache a little bit. Yeah. But- I, I love what he stands for. Yeah, he's cool. He he's uh, fearless in his beliefs, mm-hmm. and he even went on the show The Doctors. Is there a show like The Doctors on that. like on I don't know, cable TV? Okay, and they tore him apart. Yeah, you know because they're going on the science that's like current, right? But that's what fucks me up about people in science is they think that science is everything that ever was and everything that ever will be, right? But it's not. It's everything that is up till today. If you go back <laughs> to any point in history, like they were wrong about most shit. Like it it wasn't the idiots that were like, the earth is flat. It was like the leading minds of the world that were like, no, no, the earth is flat guys. Like, trust us. We figured it out. Yeah. And then you go forward, like you go back as far as you want. And the odds that were just the cliff where all of a sudden we got everything right are essentially zero. No fucking chance. So we're fucking wrong about most stuff still. I mean, yeah, there's been, you know, there's some, you capture some definites along that path for sure. And I think that's climbing pretty quickly, but definitely we're wrong about most stuff. I would say most stuff, especially if you look at that, like nutrition. I mean, we can't get on the same page about it. That's a good indicator. We're probably not, you know, into an objective truth there. We can't get into this onto the same page about anything, 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 yeah. whether it's food, uh, whether it's about politics, whether it's about God, whether it's about whatever, mm. There's opposing views and people are willing to fight to the death for it. Yeah. But what is it? 98% of the universe is black. Is it black matter? Yeah. Dark matter? Sure. It's one of those. Dark matter? Dark, Dark matter. matter. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I was thinking black lives matter. Maybe that's that's a, true too. Maybe yeah. that's a... More than 98%. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But which means that 98% of everything, we don't know what it is. So how how can we confidently say that that something is wrong sure the science up till now is just what's documented it's what we've been able to understand mm-hmm. up till this point and that's why uh the notions of of, of god or woo woo stuff 
and science, I think eventually they're going to merge and explain each other. Because throwing it back to Tony Robbins, you know, you can rub people the wrong way when you bring up Tony Robbins, just like you can rub people the wrong way if you bring up religion. Right. Or science, some people. Or science, for the same reasons. Mm -hmm. And you can't discount everything that something has based on a few points that maybe don't make sense. Yep. You know, let's say religion helped a lot of people. You know, the underlying, the underlying message, you know, like be good to your neighbor, a little fasting, um, do unto others that you, as you do to yourself. Like these are all things that if you follow them, you, you're probably going to have an easier time than if you don't. Yeah. Right. But you can't discount it completely because, uh, there's some shitty corruption and like child rape in, in churches by priests, right? You know, you know what I mean? I didn't say that too yes. poetically. Yes. I, uh, but you can't deny that there are, there is good in it. So I'm going to challenge that specifically on religion. Okay. Just cool. because I think you can observe like input output, right? We don't always know what happens in the middle. We don't know the effect that whatever that set of, of values or beliefs or ideas or whatever it is had on the function that transformed that input to the output. Diet's a great example of this, right? Someone tries a bunch of shit in their diet, like the carnivore diet. Is it because you're eating the right things or is it because, you know, is there a positive transformation from input to output because you're avoiding eating bad things? We don't really know that relationship well. Right. As soon as we figured out that relationship, that's when we're going to start to understand nutrition at a deeper level. I think the input to output relationship for religion is predominantly negative. I don't think it has, um, I don't think those things that you mentioned of like, which are really good values of like, you know, be kind to your neighbor and like, you know, uh, don't fuck your neighbor's wife, you know, don't fuck your neighbor's wife. Um, those are obviously not bad things. And I think some people do have that positive, like, um, input to output translation. But I think predominantly like also at the core sort of like inextricably linked with those things in each religion is like, with one exception is that all the other religions are wrong. If you believe in all the other religions, like you're something bad is going to happen to you. And I think they, they naturally lead people to be very sort of divided and fearful of like people who are different from them in their beliefs, even though like a lot of religions have the same sort of core set of beliefs, it's where they're different that people start to look at that and focus on that and be like, okay, I don't, you know, I don't vibe with this whole set of people because they happen to ascribe to a certain religion. That's not the one that I ascribe to. So I think that effect, I would say if we took religion out of the equation, I think the good parts would be preserved in, in, in a lot of cases. I don't think like the people who, you know, I think it's a relatively small amount of people who are only somewhat decent because it said so in the Bible or in the, you know, whatever they're reading. Uh, so I think like in general, yeah, there's this weird thing where like I'm seeing a lot of experiments and religion's kind of an experiment, right? Where you have like a set of people, you tell them a bunch of things, you get them to, you know, set these habits in motion and like go through these rituals and stuff like that. And then they turn out to be a certain type of people. Like it's a huge experiment um, that's been going on for a long time and we can kind of see input output, but like I, I, for religion, for me, it's negative predominantly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've, I guess I have a few points as I, as I always do, but 
if you take back to when it was created and the purpose for what it was, people weren't really interacting with other people. They weren't in a connected world, right? So I feel like the marketing, the branding of it has, has long since expired, right? It doesn't really hold that much water to say, like, if you don't believe in this God, you're, you're going to go to hell. And yeah, okay, that's, that's nonsense. Because if you're believing in something that's, that's going to help you, it's not going to not help someone else, right? So it, it's, I think it's common denominator. So I get your point there where it's pointing fingers to people who don't follow that same religion. But I think when it was like, let's say created, they weren't interacting with any new people anyway. Mm. It was just, I see it a lot like meditation or understanding the dark matter and knowing that, you know, like the five, the fifth dimension, as I call it, if you believe in something that's greater than you and you do good, that it's going to help you move forward. I don't see that anything different in my belief system than the belief in God. I don't call it God. I call it, let's say, the fifth dimension and the input theory and the, the 5D cloud that I visualize as, mm-hmm. this, as this theory of mine where if I'm you know, inputting good stuff and I'm, and I'm being disciplined and I'm sleeping early, then I will follow the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. That faith in something beyond people gives them something that is to believe in that's beyond themselves. Yeah. That gives them some levity, removes weight on their shoulders, right? So I love that side of it. Yeah. I I just think that the more you try to put like a face to that, and the more you try to build a specific project around that, the more it falls apart for me. Yeah. Well, I think it's just the remnants of like the old, old, old. Yeah. That's why this like fifth dimension and this time travel stuff that I talk about is really that, and it applies to every single person and creature. So what is it? Define it for me. Well, the fifth dimension... First define the fifth dimension, and then this this idea of time travel. I oh, want to hear it. Okay, so the, the fifth dimension is is dark matter. It's, it's what exists beyond our conscious awareness, which is almost everything. As we said, science only knows everything up to this point, which means that our primitive species has way much, way more to learn. So this is just an idea of don't take too much credence in your beliefs because we are barely scratching the surface of what's possible. Mm -hmm. So to discount what you can do and what exists for real is not in the realm of our understanding yet. So it's just really an openness to something beyond our understanding. Cool. That's that. the fifth dimension. Love that. And the way I visualize the, the 5D cloud, it's the way I explain evolution. It's kind of a feedback loop. I, I, I see the, the fifth dimension cloud that we're all, it, it's exactly like Google Maps or Waze because it works better. We're constantly, every creature is, is, is feeding up to the fifth dimension, right? Like this cloud. And based on our inflammation or based on our frequency, let's say I slept like shit. Let's say I uh, ate 12 donuts before I went to sleep and I, and I sent some nasty DMs and I didn't tell my lady friend, you know? So I, I'm, I'm like, I hit all the wrong fucking steps. Okay. When I wake up in the morning, the fifth dimension will analyze my frequency and send me on a path that is equal to that rubbish that I am. I'm not saying that I prove, like I prove this. It's just, it's just something that, when I don't meditate in the morning, I stub my toe. I spill my coffee. I meditate in the morning. I, I equalize my, my frequency 
and then I'm more present. I'm more observant rather than reactive. Do you think you stub your toe when you do meditate? You just have a different relationship with that event? No. Okay. I stub it way less. Way less. How often do you stub your toe? Not very often, man. Right. Not very often. you meditate. Yeah, because right. I meditate. There you go. But but you see what I mean? I do. I so, do. So it's, it's not like a literal thing. It's just uh, a narrative, a fun narrative that I've created myself that allows me to understand what I don't understand. Okay. And... And that I can apply for myself. Okay. And so time travel is that. Is once you become an observer, and once you understand that your inputs matter, and that your your frequency or your state of inflammation, because they're inversely related, will impact your decision making, and will impact essentially your subconscious. Mm. Because that's what it is. 95% of our system is subconscious. Right. Our motivations, our behaviors, our thoughts, they're all rooted in the subconscious mind. That's why... That's what this logo is. So I didn't the, notice it. So the subconscious mind is this big circle, and the conscious mind is this one. It's the one. It's the voice in our head. But cool. this is the source, and our inputs are the source. Mm. And once you can align them, how often have you tried to do things like before or people around who want to do things, but they don't change their environment, they don't change their inputs, and they're always repeating. It's transient, like flash in the pan change that doesn't last. Yeah, exactly because. There, this hasn't been tackled. Right. This has been tackled, but without the understanding of this, it's fucked. And so does it, does it mean that I actually believe there's a feedback loop? No, that's just how I visualize it. Okay. It's just my creative mind. I, I don't think it's actually like that. Right. I don't, I don't know. That was my question, because you describe it as if it's something external, but the way that you actualize it, I think, is entirely internal. Right, like when we talk about like the mind and the subconscious mind and stuff like that, like it's all kind of within that scope. Yeah. So yeah, I guess it's it's internal. So what's the best way? Because I know we've had this conversation, but I'm curious, like, what your current take on what's the best way to deliberately program your subconscious in a new direction or in alignment with who you want to become in some way? Well, it's understand that you're a vessel. Understand that you are the product of your environment. You're the product of your inputs. What is an input? It's the food you eat. It's the people you hang out with. It's the words that you hear. It's the people you identify with. It's everything that comes in your eyes and ears and mouth. Okay. And skin, everything. Mm -hmm. If you want to become something else or you want to change your habits, you need, like, for example, you want to remove your dependence of the phone. You're getting rid of the phone. It will no longer be in your environment. Therefore, it will no longer be programming you mm. because our inputs program us. Yep. That's what happens. If you want to stop smoking weed or doing drugs, it's going to be very difficult to do that if you're not hanging out, if, if you're still hanging out with people who are uh, doing drugs. Yeah. Right? Because I, I even, and this is, I call it bro science every time I take a leap, but on a microbiological level, I believe that we become we, we homogenize with the people that we spend the most time with. Isn't that proven? Isn't, isn't it been, hasn't it been demonstrated that we actually exchange? Well, we definitely do exchange microbiomes. Right. And, and they've, they've proven that you can cure someone with C. difficile, which is like a, a, a gut. It's really bad bacteria. A gut, bad gut bacteria by transplanting someone else's feces yeah. into your stomach and it'll, it'll cure it. Which is crazy. Which is insane. Yeah. You could literally take your... And, and here's, here's, here's a crazy one. And I guess there were some... The mice? Uh, yeah, n- not even the mice. This lady, mm. uh, she had C. difficile. Her daughter 
gave her the fecal transplant, but the daughter was overweight. Two months later, the mother became overweight. Isn't that crazy? That's what I was getting into with the mice. Yeah. Same experiment. And so, and so I know this time travel thing, fifth dimension, vibes, sounds all kooky and stuff. But when you break it down, our genetic expression is, it's, it's, is the result of the interaction with the environment. Mm-hmm. So that shows that if you take some of the environment, the genes will express in immediate reaction to that environment. So the new environment will made the mother's genes react in a certain way that changed the expression of her genes that made her fat. Do you think there's going to be like a, a huge shit market? Just the most successful like athletes in the world are just going to be selling their shit for people to just. Uh, yeah. Why not? Why not? No, I, I think so. Yeah. Why wouldn't there be? The first stage is like testing, which is cool. Have you, you've done one of the microbiome yeah. Uh, assessments. Yeah, biome. 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 Yeah. And? And it told me uh, exactly the foods that disturb my stomach. It told me that tomatoes fuck me up. It told me uh, spinach and kale fuck me up. And they do every time I have a fucking salad. My stomach's upside down. It told me that I do really well with meat. Mm. It told me... Here's my question. How much is that test influenced by the current sort of transient state of your microbiome? Because your microbiome changes like crazy, right? Depending on what you're eating, yeah, environment, totally. all these different factors. Yeah. So you do a test at a moment in time. Do they build that into the model and say, there's some sort of long-term prediction that you're probably insensitive to these foods and it's not just a factor of your microbiome in its current state? Uh, well, I'm not sure. But when I took the test, I was eating horribly. Okay. Pure garbage. I was eating donuts. I was eating McDonald's. Like I was still fasting and all that stuff. That's kind of what I was wondering because you're not eating kale. You, you don't have the, the healthy like bacteria and microbiota like, oh, okay, to process yeah. kale. So your the test is like, well, you're not going to do well with kale, which is true at, at that moment in time. Yeah. But uh, also a lot of our microbiome comes from our mother. I didn't know So that. like the baseline microbiome. So a lot of my mom's food insensitivities, I turned out have the same ones. Do you know why that is? Uh, I know when we come out of the birth canal, that's the first microbiome that we get. Got it. We get scooped up in it. Yeah. And like, you know, my baby bald head scooped up all my mom's vaginal fluids, which were filled with with the first microbiome. And you get from the breast milk as well. Got it. And that's... Thanks for the visual. It really, that no, look, cemented it. Now I, I, I just want to make I'll sure never that, that, that you and all the third-party vibe uh, trillions in the Galactic Federation can understand it as well. But microbiome is huge. So... Let's say we spent all of our time together. My theory based on the shit transplant is that our microbes will start to homogenize. Mm. And the tale as old as time is that we become the average of the five people we spend time with. Well, I believe that not only does our microbiome homogenize, which creates our genetic expression. So like, let's say the people we hang out with, we will have generally the same body fat percentage. And like, if you look around and you see people walking around together, they're usually yes. around the same body type. They often dress the same. So now this is a different thing. Your sense of style, your sense of cool, your sense of politics, your sense of whatever. I believe the brain or ideas, or maybe it's the, the source is words, homogenize in the same way. Right. Like our, our balance of normal, our perspective. The subconscious. This, yeah. Yeah. And so that's why this logo is people... People are our ultimate source of uh, subconscious programming because we're receiving them on a microbial level, on a verbal level, um, 
on their frequency level, which is their stress level. Mm-hmm. And that's why people often tend to, you know, they always say that the girls, let's say with like troubled dads will end up with guys who are equal to their dads because on a subconscious level, that's what they're used to. That's what their subconscious is comfortable with. Right. Yeah. They built a relationship yeah. that has a certain flavor to it that exactly. they seek out in some way to fill. Because if they're missing it from one, they want to get the same thing that's familiar. And so is that the fifth dimension cloud that's just guiding them to what they're closer to? Or is that just a visualization of the reality that happens anyway? But once you become an observer, you can choose, or at mm-hmm. least you have more choice. Yeah. Instead of just blindly going into it. What do you think the relative weighting of importance is for all those different types of input? Because like from my experience, definitely the people you hang around is huge. That has to be up there. Um, but my first, if I want to, if I'm at, at, at like a low, if I'm just at a shitty point in my life, I'm not doing the right things, I'm not engaging in the right habits, I've given up on meditation, I'm eating like shit. Always my first lever to pull is diet. Like that's always the first domino that falls in the right direction of like positive momentum is always yeah. I change what I eat. And I find that creates like this momentum that then builds and builds and builds and builds. And the other stuff starts to kind of align around that as like a scaffold for, for positive change. Well, that makes total sense to me because think about it when you start to eat well again and your stomach is not in dysbiosis, then your inflammation goes down. And in my mind, the inflammation is directly inverted to frequency vibration. So the lower your inflammation, the higher your frequency, the less your body is in defense mode, in repair mode, then you're more open to saying yes to going out and doing things. You have more belief in yourself to perhaps go for a run Mm -hmm. because your system is essentially on on. When When you eat good food, your system goes from off because it's in repair. It can't move. Your subconscious is not against you. It's not trying to kill you. It's, it's saying you're, you, you're just driving around a racetrack and you drove into a wall. That's how it perceives inflammation. Inflammation is like if you're eating donuts, all that sugar is going to do bad shit to your stomach mm-hmm. and your body needs to repair. So when your body is repairing, it's not going to tell you to go out and have a, a, a great workout or a meaningful conversation. It's going to say, I need Band-Aids. I need, I need medication. Right. Give me, give me more donuts. Give me more food. Give me more crap. Yep. But to your point, when you eat the good food, the nourishing food, you're rebuilding your system. When you rebuild your system, you rebuild your mind. When you rebuild your mind, you have the, the enthusiasm and you have the belief in yourself that you can go out and do things in the world. Which makes you hang around different people and engage with different actions and exactly. activities. So is it actually that you're feeding up to the cloud and it's sending you to these specific things? Maybe not. Maybe it's just you going out into the world. Right. And it kind of doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right. Because what's the, the output? What's the outcome, as positive. you say it? Exactly. Yeah. It's positive. So you find one lever that you can correlate with a positive shift of input to output and then just... Yeah, leverage the shit. And there's even a simpler one than that, which is don't eat three hours before bed. Oh shit, I'm bad at that. So am I. (laughs) Talk me through it. Change it for me. A conversation with you is the reason I don't drink Monster anymore. I've replaced it a little bit, but I used to have a crippling addiction to 
um, monster. Awesome. And we had a conversation similar to this. I'm hoping this is the same thing for not eating before bed. Well, hopefully it works for me too. But not eating before bed has everything to do with motivation in the morning. That's, that's how it feels for me. So when you don't eat three hours before bed, your, your stomach, I guess, is processing. Uh, well, it's done processing by the time you go to sleep so that now you are getting the full juice of your sleep. Okay. So you're, what I mean by full juice is rather than you be digesting for the first four hours of your sleep, mm. your body is in repair and cleansing and doing all the stuff it needs to do rather than doing burning the midnight oil and catching up on work. You're allowing the full, uh, the full recycling to go on so that when you wake up in the morning, you're fully re-energized. Mm -hmm. You're also hungrier. And hungry is not just food hungry. It's hungry for life. It's right. hungry to go out. It's hungry yep. and accomplish things. It's hungry to go out and make shit happen. Yeah, driven. Driven. Because what come like people who smoke weed and eat a lot of shit, they're not that driven. Why? Because they're constantly feeding their body and their body's getting the, the, the dopamine that it needs. When you remove... When you're, give, when you're overdoing it with the dopamine, your body has no desire to wake up before 1 p.m. There's no reason to go out and, and fuck the world. You know what I mean? You know, like make things happen. Yeah. Because um, that energy is, is used to, and when I, when I say fuck the world, it means to create stuff in the world. It's to, it's to create business or create opportunities. It's to... Instead of consumption. Exactly. Right. Flip that switch. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so th that's how I see it. I don't have my whiteboard, but... We, we'll do another one, a podcast yeah, with but, a whiteboard. Yeah, but does, does that make sense? It's just like you're not... Does. You're not getting everything out of your sleep, essentially. Yeah, 100%. And you're, you're curbing your morning motivation. Okay. That makes sense. That's what it is. And so if you can do that, if you can get eight hours of sleep, and then you're going to wake up in the morning and, and you're going to want to eat something healthy. You're not waking up like you're... You have to crawl back. I don't need it anymore in the morning. That's why. So if I stop eating three hours before I go to sleep, I'm done. I mean, that cuts my eating window to like two hours, basically, because I really enjoy fasting through the day. Yeah. That's why I tend to eat late because I'll push the fast as long as I can. And then I'll eat at like, you know, five, six, and then again at like nine. And then I guess that's more or less three hours before I go to sleep usually. But and can you be conscious of it. Are you aware, though? on those nights that you do finish eating early, how you feel the next day? Oh, for sure. Yeah. More the opposite. But now that I think back on it, definitely that relationship is true. But if I eat lasting, like it's always like garbage right before I go to bed on those nights, I'm eating late. It's like 11. I'll yeah, eat yeah. that, go to bed. I wake up like, hung like physically hungry, like for food. Yeah. And just like in my head, um, trouble just getting going, getting the machine going, getting the machine going. Um, trouble finding my words. I, I yeah, I, I feel like the opposite of whatever ketosis makes me feel like. Yeah, so definitely I feel that. Totally. And so all these explanations of you know the fifth dimension and this does it it does it all make sense as a like a unified theory of bro science and being your best self? Like a hundred percent. I think the best part of it for me is that um, like true to form it creates a really engaging story that I think people will be able to connect with. There's, it's like a, a metaphor that's simple. It's like an entry point and it's, it's the wedge into a deeper, very um, 
not heavy, but like very like thorough understanding of like what makes us tick and how we can, you know, leverage ourselves to improve and change and stuff like that. Um, that has a really cool kind of flashy classic Misho like entry point to it. Right. So I think that's, what's awesome about it. It's like, it's, it's a cool story on the surface. It's so easy to dismiss as like, this guy's a fucking nut job. who's just talking about space. But then the second you hear like the next sentence, it's like, Oh, okay. There's something much deeper here. That's really cool. Yeah, and then I drop words like dysbiosis and it's like, what? Yeah. What the fuck is this bro talking about? Yeah. Yeah. The science is becoming a lot less bro -y, I think the more that you read and the more that you learn about well, because it. Because I'm upset. Definitely... I love this stuff. Yeah. And it, all it does is, is allows me to explain. And I'm not saying it, it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor, but a practical metaphor. Right. And so that's why I brought up religion before, because it's no different than what the good parts of religion were trying to do. But without saying, oh, if you don't fucking believe in the fifth, no, it's none of that. It's just like you have the capacity to, to change your self. Yeah. That's why I talked about Tony Robbins and that shit. And there's, it's, 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 it's flashy and there's some fun words and shit like that. But at the end of the day, it's just like time travel for me is the philosophy of infinite possibility. It's, it's a, a metaphor for personal development. And this is the way that, I've created a narrative for myself that's mm -hmm. fun and engaging and makes me responsible for myself and takes me away from being a victim and and takes the power onto myself to do what I need to do. It pulls your locus of control right to the center. Exactly. Which is cool. Do you find that there's a negative effect of that? Like even just this idea of infinite possibilities can put like an immense pressure on every single choice that you make. Because you realize that like things, there really are infinite possibilities. This is not just two dudes talking. Like there's, it's, you know, been theorized in a bunch of different ways that there are that many like realities. There are that many potential realities. Even if you just look at a single sort of string of you moving through time, the way that you could impact your future experience is infinitely open, more or less, right? Like yeah. that there's so many pathways, all these different potential things that you could do or end up or be or whatever it may be, which means that like at this sort of like entry point into all those infinite choices, which you're constantly at, it's not like you, you know, choose a path and you're stuck on that path. Um, every decision that you make, everything that you do, every minute that you spend thinking about something, doing something or whatever it may be, or not doing something puts you on a different one of those paths. Do you find that there's like a negative sort of pressure that comes from that? No. No, I don't at all because there's literally so many possibilities and there's, it's so infinite that it like, it doesn't matter. That's sick. Because, How do I, okay. Because I, in the I present, do. So let's it, have okay. this conversation. So in the present moment, um, you have the choice to, to go on the right foot. So whatever you did leading up to now, doesn't matter because from now forward, you can go wherever you want. Yes. I love that about it. Keep going. Right. So that's, that's really the gist of it. It's, you don't have to worry about your next move. Worry about this move. And like, you're going up and if you're going to do, you know, 50 days of, of not moving forward, who cares? But once you decide you're moving up again and you're going on to this new reality and perhaps what you learned on that flat spot was what you needed to learn to make the decision to move up. It took you that long on that level. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all. Everyone's playing the game at their own pace. Are you enjoying yourself? Are your relationships good? Are you feeling proud about the work you're doing? Doesn't matter. Can you look back and learn from what you did? Because that's, that's another part of it. Rather than saying, 
oh, I didn't choose the best possible reality. There's no good or bad or best or not. In this moment when I feel strong, can I make a great decision? Sure, let's do it. Okay, I didn't make good decisions. What did I learn? Positive. Always look for a net positive. Okay. Because I know I'm talking about time travel, but you can't go back in time. The only way that you can realistically go back in time is to go back to that memory or go back to that thing you did and extract something positive that shifts your, your, your understanding of it mm-hmm. that changes you as a person today. So by you going into your memory and finding a nugget of goodness, okay. you are actually rewiring some synapse in your brain or something that allows you to see it differently, that empowers you, and now you're seeing the, the same world differently, right. which is a rise in perspective. It's a rise in, rise in consciousness. You are now, you are, you are a time traveler. You are... I think I found the difference. Okay. It's that you said there is no best reality. Like there's no best path. There's no best destination. And I think until you said that, I, I didn't even realize this consciously, but like I, I kind of have that lingering belief that there is. And that puts a pressure, oh. right? If there's a destination, I mean, there are wrong turns. And there are like, I, I know inherently that like, that's not the right way to look at it for sure. But that's still how I look at it. And I think that's what the negative pressure comes from. It's this feeling that like, if I could optimize like my path, if, if I could choose um, for all the known variables between here and where I end up um, and choose the best ones there, you know, like I could be as fulfilled as possible, uh, successful, happy, fit, in shape, healthy, all these different things. To me, that starts to coalesce around like a direction that's like almost quantifiable, which is not a good way to look at it because that's where all the negative connotations come from. And that's where the pressure on like every choice, every decision, like if my girlfriend and I eat like a, a, che- a cheat meal or like a junk meal or whatever, like we have very different one minute after that experience, right? For her, it's like, okay, I did it. I said I was going to do it and I did it. And she's like at peace with it. And she does it very infrequently. Um, But for me, it's like, I hate myself afterward. And do you do it more frequently? Yes. A hundred percent. So maybe that that overwhelming weight. worse. She'll she'll have like a little whatever. And I'm like, I'm I'm going fucking deep on this. I'm going to like, if I'm going to hate myself, I'm going to really hate myself. Yeah, but I I, I don't know. Maybe that's just... uh something that we have. But if you can understand that there's a nugget in there, because really there's no other, other productive way of looking at it. Yeah. You might as well just try to find a positive. For sure. Because what, what benefit do you get out of saying, oh man, I fucked the potential reality I could have. It's just, it's going to ruin your day. Fuck it. You did it because you needed to learn something. Create something. Use your imagination. Maybe it opened up a whole other reality that I wasn't even aware of at the time. Exactly. Maybe it sent you where you needed to go. Right. Maybe it made you go for that run that made you meet that person that you ran into in the street and you rekindled something and started a business. Never would have happened if you didn't binge like that motherfucker. We go on very different runs, apparently. Look, it's going to happen. But you know what I mean? It's, I do. It, it's I a, do, and I appreciate it. Yeah. It's an optimistic view. Yes. Because we are, as uh, Bob Marier said on my last podcast, 007, he's, he said... Uh, we are imperfect creatures living imperfect lives in an imperfect world. Might as well make the best of it. Because you and I are the same in, in that we're always disappointed with each other, our, ourselves, not yeah, each other, yeah. with ourselves because we expect ourselves to be perfect. But it, it's impossible and doesn't exist. 
And as an ecosystem, and you know, I say like every creature is feeding up to the 5D cloud. Well, how do you think technology emerges? It's all these people using it, data being fed, learning, and then making a new iteration mm -hmm. and a new iteration. And everything that everything is a platform for the next thing that's coming. Right. Whether it's, you know, the single cell organism that led to us, whether it's the internet that led to this or that, or whether you think it or not, you're contributing. Yep. By using Uber Eats so much, you, someone is learning about consumer behavior that might cure the world of the future plague. You know what I mean? So I love that. <laughs> How, um, so I love building products like, like, uh, like software products. Um, I really, really enjoy it. And one of the best like quotes that completely transformed like my entire philosophy about building products was that you're not trying to build a great product. That's not your job. Your job is to build a system that teaches you what product to build. Right. So like the idea that, and, and the distinction there is that it's first of all, accepting that you don't know what the best product to build is the same way. Like I should accept that. I don't know what the best reality is. Um, and then recognizing that there's things that you have to do. There's like measures that you can take. There's actions that you can take. There's feedback mechanisms you can build that if you do that properly, it teaches you how to build that product progressively. Right. That's why phones are so effective at sucking you into the vortex of scrolling infinitely because whoever that motherfucker was that said, what if you didn't have to click a page at the bottom and if you didn't have to click load more and it just went right. Whoever that guy was like had an immeasurable negative effect on society. And but someone would have had it anyway. Someone would have had it right. Cause the pro Cause the, the system data was, was showing built. that it, it created that. Exactly. That exactly. Cause they, they had built the system that taught them how to, you know, optimize that app or that, you know, that application in a certain direction, which was monetizing attention in the product, um, for revenue. So how do you, what's that system? I, I think you've touched on it already, but what's that system like for creating your best reality? Cause the same metaphor applies, right? Like your job is not to build the best reality for yourself. It's to build a system that teaches you what the best reality for yourself is. And that reality could shift as you move through through time and through life, your responsibilities and your, your everything changes. Right. So like, how do you, what is that system? I, well, I think the system is, is constantly evolving. The, I, I don't know if it's a system, but the idea is every time you hit a similar path, you can attack it with the previous knowledge. Okay. So there's a feedback loop, feedback loop. And the system that allows the, internet or apps or phones to be so on the cusp and so uh, easy to update and really nail is that the simulations that are being run by all of us who are, who are playing with it, that's why porn, right? Porn is always at the forefront of, of video technology, of, of marketing, of user understanding right. because of the sheer volume. Mm -hmm. And I think the only way to, you know, create a parallel with our lives is volume. We need to run as many simulations as possible. Stop ruminating. Just make things happen. Just cool. do it. Yeah. Just fucking start. Right. Just go. Just go. Instead of taking four years to think about something, just do it. Because you don't learn from the thinking. You don't learn anything. All you right. do is prevent yourself from growing. Love that. 
So just go. Just run as many simulations as possible. All the greats failed so many times and they did all these things, but what did they have in common? They just went. They just did it. So that the more, um, the more inputs you're getting, right? Like a neural net that only has four inputs yeah. is useless. Right. How, many, how many simulations or, or inputs or whatever you call it do they need before they can start to do something positive or do something that has impact? I think there, it's like, between hundreds and thousands maybe and then but it's like the data points that are really important right for for like neural networks it's like you need hundreds of thousands of of data points like of, of input output okay learn from that relationship like hundreds of thousands of times so that totally makes sense and i i guess that's it and i'm just like i didn't write a book on this you know i'm just i'm just rolling with it but essentially that's it i didn't think very long before starting the podcast i just did i had uh in business talk there were a lot of synergies, you know, yes. from, from being a musician, mm -hmm. understanding audio, having the same supply chain of uh, mastering and uh, video yeah, and all these things. Good founder fit, being a phenomenal like conversationalist, oh, genuinely interested in people. Those are good qualities as a podcast host. Well, thank you. And yes, that I took that in. I wouldn't even consider podcasting if, if I, for years I have considered or not considered, but thought, why don't I record these conversations I have with people? Because literally every conversation, this is a specifically awesome one, but these kinds of conversations need to be out there. We need to give those third-party vibes because maybe it'll plant a seed. You know, maybe something you say, someone will hear and they'll, they'll, they'll order that light phone too. And then they'll create some amazing technology because they weren't, uh, you know, looking at cat videos or some bullshit. Right. Um, it's always cat videos. That's a classic example. Cat videos. Well, they're so cute that it hurts. I'm not big on, I'm not a cat guy. That's okay. So, and look, but dog videos for me, it's the same thing. Okay. Same dog videos. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we get each other. Yeah. But yeah, really that's it. It's, it's just about going and doing. That's why I, I really love people who are, who are seemingly stupid because they're not over processing. They're not over um, simulating. They're just going. Yeah. They're just doing it and they accomplish great things. Right. And because their neural net has hit so many experiments yep. that it has, that they're just ready to rock. Like they understand how to do things because they just started rather than hypothesize. So that's the downside of having a, a, a very good imagination is so that we get lost in it. What's gotten you past? Cause we're the same way. Like if we had the choice, like we would just sit here with a whiteboard, you know, thinking about shit all day. Yeah. So what's gotten you to overcome like the activation potential of actually going out, trying things, doing things. Cause I've like, I've seen a, a huge shift over the last couple of years in you in that direction. So what, survival. what was it? Survival. In what sense? Making money. There's no, there's no greater stimulus or there's no greater motivator than trying to make a living. Hmm. I came out of a business. I sold it. And I want to make a living doing this. And I have to go hard and commit and learn and give it everything I've got if I want to get a chance to be good enough to be able to make a living doing this. So I need to fully commit and I need to learn as fast as possible and put shit out as fast as possible so that I can learn how to make money doing this. So that's really it. I want to, I want to build. I want to do things. I want to put music out. I want to do I want to do this for a living. I made a choice to get out of a business that I could have stayed in for a very long time 
because I knew that I would have little impact, uh, that my life would not be, uh, I, I don't think I'd be fulfilled. And so I made the, made the choice. And then I guess, is that, is that an, is that an answer? I think you got to the answer in the end for me, which is you had to take that leap initially, right? You had to, because you were not in a position where the stuff that you did in your day-to-day life beyond like the call of, of the job that you were in at your company was required for survival from a financial perspective, right? So you had to take that leap and remove yourself from a certain security uh, and comfort zone. So like it, it was that that I was after, like how do you like really yeah, well, take I'm, that leap? Well, I took the leap. I left something that was comfortable, but I knew that I believed in myself, right? And I was of clear mind and I made decisions to leave something that was lucrative, which seemed crazy. And I cashed out, but cash doesn't last forever. And I'm a, I'm a realist. As much as I you know visualize the fifth dimension, I know that survival, I know that I understand business. I understand it from an investor standpoint and understand it from an entrepreneurial standpoint and artistic as well. And at the end of the day, uh, I needed to put myself in a sink or swim position yeah. because I'm not going to go back there. I can't. That bridge is burnt. I'm not going to go work in an office. I'm not going to go work for anyone else. So I have literally no choice but to make this work. There's like, there's no choice. So I, I'm all in on this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. It is. Because if, if this is a hobby, then I'm not all in. Uh, and I don't think I'd be approaching it the same way, but I'm, I'm using the best fucking lights that I get. I got the best camera that I can fucking get. I'm going to put this out every single week. I'm going to clip the videos. I'm going to look at the pros and see what they did and see what works. And I'm going to just put shit out because I want to do this and I need to survive. So I can't half-ass it. Right. So survival is the ultimate uh, motivator because I ain't going to work for anyone else. No, that ship has sailed. Yeah, well, look, if, if it came down to it and like I had to, like I, I, would, I would do what I have to do. But right now I've, I've created enough runway for myself where it, it gave me the flexibility and freedom to do this. Yeah. But there's an, every runway has an end and I want to be building a new business, a new vessel for myself that coincides with my core values my belief systems my passions yep and um i'm going to take everything that i've learned you know in the last 33 years and apply it and that's what i'm doing it's a super healthy relationship with that pressure i never had that relationship with it when i was a an artist i had the same like click realization like do or die i had that feeling every single day do or die like that urgency i'm a super hard worker and I've always had that. But for me, and I'm curious how this was for you, that pressure changed the art in a terrible way. Like the starting to look at making music as creating a product completely ruined it for me. And that's, I think the, the number one reason I don't like attention. I don't like being in the spotlight. I think that was a huge factor as well. It just seemed incompatible with like success in that realm. Um, but the number one reason that I don't think I'm still like actively trying to be an artist is that it 
it, my relationship with making music changed because I put that external pressure on it to be a source of income, to support myself, to eventually support a family and like, you know, facilitate the quality of life that I want to live. All of that seemed to completely change the relationship with the actual music and my process for writing. And it just created this whole layer that clouded the, the magic, which was why I got into music in the first place, which, which was like this flow state, like deep, you know, kind of very present connection with the art of writing and, and making music. So I'm curious what that relationship is like for you. Well, as you know, I hope I didn't just fuck it all up. I <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Because you hear my music, right? You you see this look and this feel. I'm really, I'm really taking a leap in, into going into a realm that, like, I'm not making top forty music. You know, I'm not uh, looking like the. I don't dress. I don't dress or speak the words that like the norms or like the, the other success stories are doing, I'm just looking at it from a formula basis. Mm. And I'm having faith that if I lean into it hard enough, that it will happen. Which it's, is it, totally it's, true. It's banking on yeah. being myself. Yeah. Really, like I, my, my songs, you know. I love that. I think that's it. You believe that if you make music that's true to you and you found some way, which we can talk about, about how to protect that process from like the external pressures of, well, if I, you know, if I use this chord instead of that chord, probably more people would like this song. Honestly, if, I don't if, even think about that right. ever. So you've, you've sheltered yourself from like those, that connection, but then you, you've applied all of that pressure to the next part of the process, which is getting that music out there, putting yourself out there, building the channels, you know, advertising, marketing, becoming a business, building a business around the music. But you've been able to do that on a foundation of music that is true to you as an artist. I think that is incredibly rare and I think it's cool and I think it's why you're going to be successful and I hope it it never changes. Well, I appreciate that. Um it also coincides with like some books. Look, the mu- on the music standpoint, I I the goal was never to make money doing it. Like there was no goal. I was make I was just making music cuz I love to make music and it just I got onto this path, but now in terms of how do I get it out and how do I cut through and how do I make this happen? It's allowed me to it forced me to, to read marketing books mm. and understand branding. And the more books I read, the more I got that the truer you are to yourself, the more you will cut through because you are yourself. State your beliefs. Don't worry that it's going to be polarizing because if it polarize, it doesn't polarize 100% of the population, who are you going to even communicate to? It, let's say you, you state your, your religious views or your political views. You might lose 50%, but now you'll have someone in the 50% who actually gives a shit about what you're saying. So the niche that you create for yourself can only be based on being entirely yourself. You have to be yourself. Like, and it's, if you read that book back in the day, I wish we had this conversation 10 years ago. Then, just thinking that. And, and there's these pressures. And cause we look, we're, we look at, we look at what's going on in music. We look at the, the charts. We, and we say, Oh, well, if I, if I can ride that wave, then I can do that. But I, I look, you know, I read Perennial Seller, uh, Ryan Holiday, and he talks about Metallica. For 10 years, they were on the road. They made music that was, first of all, they never even had a music video, and they were in the MTV age. Their first video was Metallica 1 in 89. I didn't realize that. That's crazy. Yeah, and their first video was an eight-minute video, <laughs> okay? Um, they crafted a sound that was not like any other sound. They were, they created their own 
place, their own niche, right? They didn't try to be the next Springsteen. They didn't try to be the next Poison. They just were bold enough to create their, their, own, their own place in the ecosystem. Same with Iron Maiden. Like, how did I, Iron Maiden and Metallica and, and who is it? The, the Grateful Dead are the biggest touring acts in the world. And they've never been on top 40 radio. Right. But they have stayed true to themselves for the entirety of their careers. And they have dedicated fan bases. They have dedicated fan bases because they're true to themselves. Uh, they have consistently built since their inception. Like, it was, it was small at the beginning. Maybe it was easier to get a record deal if you sounded like someone else at the beginning. But you're, you're fighting for, for market space. Right? You, you, whereas they, whether they knew it or not, created their own segment. And that's what I just chose to follow. I said, I'll just, I, I believe in, in what I'm doing. I, and honestly, I don't have the ability to, to just do what other people are doing. So that's not in me. Yep. So I can't do it. And I read enough branding books and marketing books to realize that the, the real secret sauce is just be boldly yourself speak your truths and people will latch onto it because as an, as an independent artist and Metallica and Maiden and all those guys were all indie to a certain extent, they're still kind of indie and they just make deals with majors. I guess I could be wrong, but they, when you're an indie and you're creating your own niche and your own environment, you're, you don't have the same rules as when you're under a, a major label. You don't have to hit the same thresholds, mm -hmm. the same numbers to, to make your revenue. You own a lot more of what you're doing. You own almost entirely what you're doing. And control more. Control. So do I need to have uh, 20,000 people at every show? I sure love it. But without a record label that's uh, in a 360 deal or something, uh, 2,000 people at a show will probably give me the same amount of revenue. And sure, maybe that'll get me to 50,000 people per show at a certain time, but there's more ownership. There's obviously, I have the ability to, to fund myself during this process, but I realize that, that money is, can only, it, it can't really get you that far. There's a lot of people with way more money than me who'd like to be rock stars and it's not going to happen Oh yeah, because I, it, it takes a, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm try, still trying to figure it out, but I, uh, I went on there a little bit, but no, that's like exactly what I was looking for. Because I've seen you write songs, and I've seen you in the studio. And My it's, favorite. It's not what that was like for me. Um, songwriting a little bit differently. When I started writing for other artists, and I think I'm realizing that I'm a different like um, archetype than you. Like you're the artist, for sure, right? And and you've you've built a set of of very pragmatic skills around that. Um, in your understanding of the world and the mechanics of business and economics and all that stuff that I think is a huge weapon as an artist. And most artists don't, you know, survive or, or thrive on their art because they don't either build those skills or partner with the right people to, to fill that void. Um, I don't see myself as the artist anymore. That, that's a relatively like recent transformation. And it started with like songwriting Um because I realized I loved writing songs a lot. I liked going from nothing to creating something. Um, oh, fuck. Oh, that's just... Uh, don't mind that. that was tape, duct yeah, tape. Yeah, it's holding this whole place together. Yeah, it's duct tape. Yeah. Um, I knew that was going to happen, too. Yeah. It happened, right? It was yeah. meant to happen. 
It's all good. So I realized that uh, writing with other artists, that's where I could really preserve like that, that proximity to the process and to the, like the art itself without thinking too much about the commercialization of it. And that allowed me to like, you know, being positioned just adjacent to the actual artist, I found a much more comfortable place there. And I think I'm a much better writer than I ever could be as an artist and I enjoy it more and it just, it flows and it's better. Um, I like helping people tell their story. I like being like a lens through which good ideas and bad ideas get filtered out. And I think I'm good at that. I'm good at refining ideas. I think what makes me not a terrible writer is that I, you're a great writer. I thank you. I, I like to refine and I have higher standards for like what makes it out the other side of the writing process. I think that's the main difference, right? Like as an artist, you're like, it's very fluffy and you're like, Oh, this is the idea. It just came to me and you like kind of pull it together and it sounds okay. And it's like, it's it, based on your pattern. So it feels good as you're like recording it, but you don't have those like hard filters of like, that's a terrible idea, dude. Like don't put that in the song, keep going, keep, you know, rewrite it, take it, jumble it around, you know, refine it, refine it, refine it. And as an artist, you get to have a perspective that's not intimate. It's like the same thing. Uh, as you step out, this is kind of the thread of the conversation. As you step out and become an observer to like your thoughts, you start to see them a lot more clearly, right? You have a lot more clarity and perspective around their actual interface with the real world. And it's the same thing for lyrics. If you're not going to be the person singing those lyrics, it's so much easier to objectively see like, is this really like the, the right message? Is this the right way to say this? Is there a better rhyme here? Like, could we play with the structure here? Does this flow right from end, from beginning to end? I, and I love like that realization because it makes so much sense to me. If I like model it retroactively on like my life, it makes total sense in every regard. So I think the same is true as like an entrepreneur. Like I don't see myself as like the billion dollar idea guy anymore, but I think I can be someone that helps shape that idea and mold it into something that actually interfaces with the world in, in a super valuable way and find like the magic in it that, you know, is there. Like there's always magic in a writing session. Most of that magic ends up getting distorted by the time the song is finished, right? And that's why, you know, a lot of songs suck because you, you you don't recognize the magic and build it out into a song. Like whatever, however it gets translated through that process isn't through the right lens or isn't through the right process. And it, it lends, it ends up in like a terrible end product. That's what happens with most writing. I think that's how I see myself now. And it, I found so much comfort in that realization because it takes the pressure off of like needing to be at the center of whatever that project is moving forward and understanding like my place in that and like really just being comfortable in that, that place. So, and so all that, like what I'm getting out of that is, is you learned in the last few years, the difference between what you thought you wanted to be and what you were. Yes. And isn't that, a beautiful revelation a hundred percent because you're able to really lean into it rather than, you know, you, you, I don't know exactly how you said it, but kind of like swimming upstream. Did it feel like a battle? Did it feel like a hurdle to do like when it comes to the art or when I'm talking about making the videos and doing all that stuff, it, you asked me, does it feel that way? And I'm like, no, not really. It doesn't. And you said it felt like that for you. And yes. it's because it, you didn't have the, cause you didn't get to that point where you like realized what you're, how beneficial you could be as a songwriter and what led you to write that first song. Cause I'm curious, you, I want to know what led you to your first co-writing session with a different artist. Um, good question. Uh, starting to 
network, which I didn't do as an artist, right? I was very much like, I want to control this whole process from writing. I'm going to write by myself. I'm going to record this in my garage. I'm going to buy all the shit I need. I'm going to mix it myself. One man against the world. Just nightmare like situation, right? Like it's like the number of people that can do all of that stuff and do it well enough to create a good product. There's like maybe a handful in the world, right? Prince. (laughs) Right. Like the Calvin Harris's of the world. Like there's not many people that can do that. Um, Not to put Prince and Calvin Harris in the same sentence, but I think it was starting to connect with people, other musicians, and recognizing that, you know what? I'm good at some things. I'm not good at a lot of these things. And by collaborating with other people who are good at those things, you know, starting to work with other musicians and producers, that opened my eyes to like, if you can take your ego out of whatever the fuck it was that made me need to control the whole process and say, I'm, I'm good at some of this stuff. Um, I think I had realized that I wasn't going to be a successful artist, at least on the path that I was on. And that realization was like, okay, what do I love about making music? And how can I, you know, just run experiments? Like you said, you know, run, run simulations. And, and then that led to like the, just through those connections, it led to the first co-writing session. Um, and instantly that was like magic for me. Whatever, all the negative stuff that I brought up before about like that connection between like the, the external drivers um, and like the external sort of like, uh, requirements from like a productization of music perspective, they went away. And for some reason I was able to protect myself much like you said in your own process, you're able to completely shield yourself from all that stuff when you're making the music. And then as soon as you flip that switch, you go into like, let's get this into as many people's hands. And you're probably not thinking at that point, like, let's generate as many dollars as possible. Let's get this into as many ears as possible let's find as many people to connect with this this piece of art that i just made which is totally the right way to look at it and obviously the irony is that that leads to revenue at the end of the day so yeah it just i I think whatever it is that makes you an artist and makes you love that process and makes you really good at what you do and authentic at what you do i went through that similar transformation but just in a, in a, a different way and so i guess when you were doing everything alone you were in your bubble as soon as you left your bubble and I'm sure right away, as soon as you started to work with other people, you, your interaction with your environment, your expression changed. 100%. It, it found where its placement was. You know, going all the way back to the social integration, when you were doing everything alone by yourself, you didn't know what you were exactly, or you thought you'd be something, right? Because you were thinking about it. But as soon as you went into the playing field with others, you found your spot right away and you became the QB there. Yep. You know, you became first liner, songwriter. You know how to, how to, to, to keep the lightning in the bottle because that's how you were explaining the song. You don't want to bastardize it. Right. You know, because often like, well, I don't know because I only write fucking hits. <laughs> right. So, but. For other artists. Yeah. 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 You, you want to you wanna keep that going. You want to, you don't want to overdo it. And that's, that's your strength. And that, that applies to all kinds of other things that you're good at in life. It, there's, there's this similar thread is that you're able to, to see yeah. and understand. And I think being more of an observer to like whatever the seed was, right? So if it's like a product or a company, like if you're the person that has the idea, you're always going to be the person that cares most about it. Always. It doesn't matter who you hire, how effectively you find people to partner with investors. Like it's always going to be you. That's the most intimately connected to that idea. 
which is great from a passion and drive perspective. You're going to work the hardest, you're going to whatever, right? But from a, a clarity perspective, it's the worst thing. Like, so that's what I've seen um, in in music and, and from a, like a product and like company perspective as well. It's that like you lose so much sight of, um, you, you lose a lot of objectivity, which you need, I think, in art as well as, as in, in business because you're just so emotionally connected to that, like that central initial idea. And you're not as amenable to that idea changing in the ways that it will have to change if it's to interface with the world in some valuable way. And that's true for songs as well, right? Like the initial idea for the song, a lot of the time that initial idea is great, but it's the way that you shape and mold and build around that, that, you know, if you want to connect with your fan base or with, with people who are listening to the music, like, stuff has to align in a certain way. And it's really hard to predict how that, that happens if you're so connected to the initial idea. I mean, it happens even like on a macro scale, like with demos, right? Like the more you listen to demoitis, demoitis, exactly. The more you listen to that and kind of ingrain that, like even a really positive change to it is still a change. So there's some part of your ego that's like, I don't like it. It's not good. Yeah. A negative bias towards something that changes for sure. Yeah. Which you, as an, uh, as a writer, I mean, you definitely, you still have that because like you write stuff and sometimes the artist doesn't like it or yeah, you know, someone course. listens to it and they're like, I don't know about that line. And you're like, that's a great line. You're a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I have it a lot less than I, I did like as an artist. And, and uh, I've always been sort of afraid to put myself out there. And for some reason, because I guess it's because there's like a, one other layer between what you've written and the people listening to it, right? It's almost like I can hide behind like the artist it's their song. They're putting their name on it. They're putting their face on it. They're the ones that this is my song. I identify with this song. This is, you know, part of me as an artist. And I'm just kind of like in the shadows. Because they're selling it. Yeah. Exactly. You know, maybe you're not the salesperson. Right. Right. They're the salesperson. They're the vessel for your creation. Right. Yeah. So you're the engineer. You, you, you help mold the product. But it, then you hand it off to the person who's going to go sell it. Mm-hmm. Who essentially is the, is the, the singer. Right. Right. Like, like, like me. Yep. I work with pros in the studio. I work with great producers and songwriters and it's up to me to sell it. And it's, that's just the way it is. But I have, I'm, I'm a sales guy. I'm a salesman. And you have the courage to stand behind your product. And it's one that is in line with who you are as a person and like represents like you as a person. So that's like even more courage to do that. Right. Totally. So yeah, I, I guess I didn't have that, that courage. Well, I don't know if it's not that courage. It's just a different skill set. Right. You don't, uh, everyone, everyone has a unique set of, of skills. And so I don't think it's, I don't think it's courage. I think it would like, I'm not being courageous by doing it. It's just how I am. Right. You're not being courageous by writing songs. You're just doing what you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a matter of, of understanding who you are totally. and, and what you're good at. Yeah. I think if I was meant to be an artist, I would have found the courage. To put myself out there and I wouldn't have given it a shit like about, or I would have cared, but I would have pushed through it anyway. So totally. Yeah. I think I'm right where I'm supposed to be. It, you're exactly where you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Yeah. The part of the process where I feel um, is, is more difficult for me is the marketing of it. You know, the, the you know, the, the ads and the clicks and that shit. I, I'm not good at that. And I'm too close to the, the project to, to really understand that. And I don't have the skill set. So now I'm starting to understand that, I will go to a publicist. I will talk to people. I will talk to a potential indie label. I will, because they will, they have a skill set that can take my package 
you know, and this, this, this helps building this podcast is definitely going to help with the awareness because it's like you said earlier, I'm not shovel shoving or shoveling uh, my music down podcast listeners throats. No, this is, this is an independent thing, but what it does is, is builds personality. It builds an understanding of who I am, who my guests are. Mm-hmm. It's, it's its own thing and it's great. And whoever crosses over to the music, like this is the sales funnel for the music. And the, the, the conversion is, is a small amount. But without that conversion, even though it's small, is going to be more than the music by itself. Because it's very hard to sell a product. It's very hard to trust a, or to buy something from a salesman if you don't know them. So like a traveling salesman, which I was, if you have a rapport with the people and you go out and you go for dinner and you talk on the phone and you become friends, when you have something to sell that they need, because everyone listens to music, they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll take your call. They'll, they'll go to the meeting. But imagine trying to sell something to someone you never met before. Who the fuck is this guy? What is this sponsored ad coming in my face? Like, you have to do that. But this is, again, once again, long game. I'm going to build a relationship. I always look at Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is one of the top-selling comedians in the world. Sells out stadiums. Well, not stadiums, but uh, arenas. I'm pretty sure the Joe Rogan podcast, not everyone who listens to the podcast goes to see him when he's in town. But so many people listen to that fucking podcast that even the smallest amount will fill up a stadium when it comes to town because it's his sales funnel for that. But it... It's like, that's not the full goal. I know that I love having conversations with people and it's the only way to get my personality out. I'm not going to be making videos, talking to the screen by myself. I'm not going to be telling people how to live their lives because I'm fucking trying to figure out how to live my life. But having a conversation with people and putting it out there on a consistent basis, I think will help my other endeavors, will help solidify my brand. And then as this package develops, then an other partner coming in to help me with the marketing and distribution of stuff will be more interested in someone who's built a relationship and has a rapport with an audience. And then you can lean into it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, my, that's where I'm at with that stuff. Because I, I was jack of all trades as well. Yep. But now I'm becoming a jack of all outsourcing. And that works really well. Yes. It works a lot better. Yeah. You know? I find you, know, you more than anybody I know, know what you like and know what you don't like. And are not afraid to draw the line in the sand and say, I'm not going to do these things and I'm going to do these things. Because I understand the negative uh, side of doing things that I don't want to do. Like sometimes you have to. There, there's, no, there's no going around it. But the, the pros far outweigh the cons of uh, distributing stuff. And I come from a manufacturing background. We have suppliers. So like this is not a a foreign concept to me working with consultants or different suppliers and, and, and having a, you know, a production schedule. I, it, that's been ingrained in me since I'm like 13 years old. Yeah. So it, it's, it's natural. So when I look at other artists that inspire me, I look at, I look at my, like Madonna. That's an entrepreneur, you know, Puff Daddy, P Diddy entrepreneurs, best vocal range. Not really. But were they personalities and did they know how to outsource and work with the right people and connect the dots and make deals? That's what excites me about. Better at that than making music, I would say. The relative balance of those skills compared to the average, they are a hundred times better at the latter than the, the, like the music part. Totally. 
Totally, but their their ability to sell and their ability to look a certain way and is unreal. Their ability to be a fucking boss yep. far outweighs everything else. And they work with the best songwriters. And I'm starting to understand that too, that like I write decent songs, but I don't write great songs. When I write with other people, I write great songs because I'm working with great songwriters. And so I, I have- It's not rocket science. It, it's not rocket science. Can I, can I talk to people and can I make people excited? Yeah, sure. Can I come up with like spacesuits and a crazy fucking ideas and stuff like that? Yeah. And there's all kinds of amazing songwriters. Maybe that, that song that I played you downstairs, maybe we'll, you know, kick the can around and see if uh, we can come up with a, a hot ass fucking verse. Sounds good to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because that's going to be a fucking banger. I write good. I can get them started. You, you write good seeds. Exactly. It was like, like that magic sort of in, like the, whatever the, the lightning in the spark bottle. is. Exactly. You write very good stuff that, that fits that description, which is cool. As a writer, it's fun to work with artists like you that like aren't just trying to reference, right? Like that are just like, hey, I had this crazy fucking idea and it turns out to be awesome. And it's like, yeah, it's awesome. And we can make it an awesome song by like building on it like Yeah, this. not just one awesome part. Right. Because yeah. I just have a chorus right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you like that when you write? You get in like a pattern? When you find something cool, you're just like, I want to play this a thousand times because it feels good and it's awesome. Uh, no, not really. That's, that's why you finish songs. Yeah, I, I, I always finish songs. And this one, this particular one we're talking about is different because I wrote the chorus and I couldn't really, and I, I have a pre-chorus, but I couldn't really get anything else together. Mm. So rather than fighting it, I just say, well, something else is going to happen. Same when I wrote uh, this song, Weird. It's, it's not out yet, but I wrote a third verse for a girl voice. I had no idea who was going to write it. But I said, I figured, oh, it's, it would be a good spot for a girl to sing this verse. And then the next day I ran into a girl who was perfect for, to sing that song. So I, I don't fight it. And I, I didn't go through my Rolodex to, to find who's going to do it. I just say, it's going to happen. And sometimes I write a full song and we go and those songs are a vibe too. Cause some of them are just my songs, you know, like photon love. I, I had that one done. How'd you write photon love? What was the process? What was the initial spark? Um, Remember? Yeah. I was at my brother's house and I just picked up the acoustic and I wanted to write a song. I think I, I knew what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write a song about getting spicy in the DMs and that it's a, it's a universal truth. For anyone that's heard the song, it seems like a, a huge leap, like from that as the inspiration to the actual like finished product. That's a pretty cool well, we, translation of that, we that wait, concept. We wait all day to talk all night. We got the best midnight delight. Yep. And that, that's all it was. But the process was really, I, I played some chords that sounded cool and I just started humming and it really just came together. How much did you write in that initial session? Probably like 85% of it. Yeah. The magic, like the, the bulk of it. Yeah. Yeah. The bridge, the, there was some magic that happened in the studio. Yes. Let, yeah. let that happen. But uh, the verses and pre-choruses and choruses were, that was just, it just came. And uh, there, there wasn't too much thought. But even when I co-write, there, there's not, there's not very much thought. Mm -hmm. Other than like, let's get a song that goes like this. They're, they're usually whatever comes best first and then building off of that. 
Um, the song Down For You that's not out yet, we, we wrote the verses and the choruses, but we were having a hell of a time arranging it, which is so rare. Right. Never, like we're always, arrangement is not an issue. I'm good with dynamics and uh, it's all about vibe and feel, but we just couldn't get it. And then when I was rehearsing with my band, we played the song and we just were fucking around and it arranged itself. Which is so cool. In the live room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we said, well, we have to scrap the recording we have and we have to re-record it like this. That's fucking awesome. Because this is at fucking fire. Yeah. And it's just, the, and that's not fighting it is, is, which is tough. It's easier said than done, especially when there's deadlines and there's this and there's that. But I find deadlines help. The answers miraculously come. Constraints again. Yeah. Constraints are key. But if I can't write a verse, we'll figure out the verse in the studio. Mm-hmm. If there's no bridge, same thing. If we can't find the arrangement, let's just jam and see what happens. So there's this free-flowing thing that is very free that happens in the studio. Even with, with the singing, there's no overthinking. I, I sing in studio like, a, like an assassin almost. It's like we go in and bang, 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 bang. Okay, we got it. Let's comp. Yeah. And it's like, it's fast. It's sick. There's, there's, there's no bullshit. There's no, it doesn't take time. It's just, it's like, okay, let's go. Next, next part. Let's go. Yeah. And that way there's no overthinking. There's no uh, stress. And the longer it takes, the worse it is. It's kind of the same like analogy where you just trust that you trust yourself first and foremost, and that's where the confidence comes from. And you trust that by being in the room with good people who are good at what they do, like the, a good song is going to emerge from that. Like, so you can go into the studio with that, that verse written. Cause like for me, that sounds like a fucking nightmare. Right. And I, cause I think it's the same way that like I imagine, or I, I sort of think that there is a best version of this song and that puts stress and pressure on every single lyric choice, every word choice, every chord choice, every arrangement choice and all that stuff which again ends up like, you know, clouding the song a lot of the time. And as an artist, that was the, the process. As a writer, I'm able to abstract myself from that, like that pressure and, and use it in a positive way and use all those constraints in a positive way. So yeah, it's cool that you write that way. And I, the few times that we have worked together, it's inspired me to be equally kind of spontaneous and to trust myself to like fill those, those gaps with something that's great. And it turns out pretty well in the end. It's about... Trust. Yep. It's about faith in your abilities when the time comes. And that's a tough thing to do because it can't be planned. You can't show up prepared. And I always thought that was a detriment. I always, I always relied on how I would be in the moment and thought it was just being lazy and I should prepare more. So I always came in with this idea that I should have prepared more. When in everything I do, when I just show up and do it, it's way better. But you kind of do prepare like through, through you get your reps in. Oh, like no, you, for, for sure. You write a lot. Like when you pick up a guitar, you don't put it down for two hours. You're just banging out ideas. So that, that to me is preparation that when you hit those moments, like you have some foundation to put the right thing into that pocket. Yeah. I'm, I'm always practicing. I'm always writing. So I guess that's why I have the confidence to just say, yeah, it's, it's not coming. So it'll come when it, when it wants to. Yep. And, and that's it. But I really love it. You feel that in your music. More than like any artist that I listen to. Like really? The, the spontaneity is uh, palpable in like the songs that you make. And also Love that. just Thank that you. it's not trying to fit into any box. 
it comes off as like incredibly authentic right down to like the choices of sounds and instruments and samples and like the riffs that you write that like, you know, are sort of like not out of place, but like definitely not what the majority of writers would have put as a input output. Like this is the function in the middle. So it's cool. I like, uh, I like your music for that reason. Well, thank you very much. It's very, uh, it's very nice of you to say. Yeah. And I think cause it's authentic. It's real. Wait till the, till the world hears it and i'm and it's honestly the most fun that i have in life is writing music and recording music being in the studio is is one of the most fulfilling things that i have ever done in my life and i love it it's magic it really is magic so speaking of magic should we uh should we wrap this up my friend let's do it so mr mark vesprini this was amazing do you have like a ritual that you go through at the end of the... Uh... Well, I'm starting to develop it. Starting yeah. to develop it. Okay. Normally it starts with where can people find you if they w- if you want them to find you? Because you're, you're kind of elusive. Nowhere. Nowhere. All yeah. right. So Mark Vesprini can be found on this podcast. There you go. He will be a return guest. I'll be back. Uh, he, You can find him on a track that we wrote together called Flowers. And so on the YouTube machine, I'm going to actually link it in the description here and you'll be able to to hear mark on a verse that he spontaneously wrote in the moment on the spot and it's a fantastic verse appreciate that thank you really damn good it was fun yeah a lot of fun it's got great vibes yeah we captured your brothers on it yeah yeah Yeah, in the gang vocals yeah we captured a real summer energy so that song is called flowers featuring mark vesprini it's on uh, spotify apple music youtube all the good stuff it's my only footprint online that's it huh yeah and it's me. Pretty much. Well, that's how, what I really want to treat this podcast as. I want it to be a platform where all the amazing friends that I have, I can expose them to the world. Because you're great, man. People would want to listen to you. You have a profound thought process. Uh, the way that you, you ask questions and think about situations and, and, and speak them so clearly and eloquently is amazing. So Thank you. I appreciate that. People will want to hear more of you. I'm absolutely certain of it because that's just the way it is. So yeah, so that's how you can find Mark. Um, we have a sponsor, um, Smoke Show. Oh, baby. So smokeshowsauce.com. I actually uh, saw Dave spontaneously Oh yeah, last, last night, two nights ago. Yeah. Great. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Fantastic product. What a beauty. He was on episode three. Nice. Which goes on not this week, but next week. I got to start releasing these so everybody can watch them. Yeah. Well, I'm putting them out once a week now. Well, now, since it started last week was the first one. Cool. Number two comes out Monday, three the following Monday. And, awesome. And it allows me to, to build a little bit of a, uh, a database. Very cool. And I'm not going to rush them out now. It's not like we're building the audience, right? So, uh, yeah. So Can't sm- wait to see Dave's smoke show. Oh, Shout it, out it was to hilarious. The best hot sauce on the planet. Yeah, yeah. And uh, promo code MISHO. Nice. For 10 to 15% off, we haven't uh, decided yet. Well, I got to get my own promo code. Yeah, you do. You do. So there's that. What else? Well, my name is Misho. I make music. You can find me uh, on Spotify, on YouTube, M-I-S-C-H-O. I I love to make music and uh, I rock and roll, but I love to have conversations with great people. So that's why we're here, fellow time travelers. And we went pretty deep into time travel philosophy today. We went right into it. Right into it. And I think that was the most profound that... I've ever spoken about it on the on the interwebs. 
So I'm very excited for people to hear this. I do as a co-writer. You're yeah. you're fucking legendary, dude. And uh, other than that, that's all I got, fellow time travelers. This was a blast. This was excellent. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. You are a natural. My pleasure. Legend. And uh, we're going to have a great dinner now. Let's do it. All right. So uh, see you next time, fellow time travelers. Have a good one.